this this is a serious sport. I, I know how quickly things can happen in this sport. Yeah. I owe it to myself to like let me at least talk to the doctors and make them aware yeah. that I feel like something's off. And so I went and I talked to the the medical staff on hand. They they hooked me up to some diagnostic machines to check my heart rate and everything and lo and behold I was in AFib, atrial fibrillation. My heart was skipping beats. Welcome to the Shaw Strength Podcast. I hope you guys are doing well. Today, I am joined by Mr. Gabe Pena. And if you haven't heard his name, you will be hearing more of his name. He is a guy that's up and coming, definitely making a name for himself in the strongman world. How you doing, buddy? I'm fantastic. You know, part of my soul gets energized just being up here in the mountains. So it's life is good right now. We, we have talked about that a little bit. Actually, just a couple minutes ago, you put up your drone yeah, I in, did. in my driveway which was unique, man. You're like, hey, this is a beautiful day. It's a clear blue sky, and we've got some snow on the ground here in Colorado, and I need to get a shot of this. So I just stood back, and I said, okay, go ahead, man. And you put the drone up and got some really, really cool shots. You know, a lot of what I enjoy in life is getting viewpoints from a higher vantage point, you know, and I, I got myself a drone, something I've always wanted to get like late last year, and I come from a part of the country that's just flat and two-dimensional. So I'm here in the mountains. I love being here. I see that sunrise hitting that continental divide. Let me put up the drone and capture some of these memories to take home. Yeah, I, well, I, I got to see a, a viewpoint uh, from from the the house here that I have not got to see. So thank you for yeah, that. Yeah, of course, man. And we'll yes. definitely put it up again. It was awesome. So today we get to learn more about Gabe. And I'm really excited about this because I did a little bit of research. You know, of course, uh, your background and some of that stuff, which I'd love to dive into and just learn more about you and really try to figure out what makes you tick, you know, and, and I feel like you're a guy that uh, from the message that you put out there is very positive, very grateful, and uh, just a, a really good mindset from what I have seen. So I think this is going to be really interesting, man. Well, it's fun. I mean, uh, I'm here to dive right in. There's definitely been a lot of self-improvement and philosophy gained over the years. So I'm an open book, Brian. Let's get at it. I love it. I love it, man. So, so growing up, I know that you were the oldest of six siblings, so with about a two-year gap, is that right? Correct. My, a lot of our family friends and just friends in general like to refer to our family as the Brady Bunch. It's <laughs> mom and dad and three boys, three girls, and I'm the oldest of the six. That's, that's crazy. So what was, that, what was that experience like, like growing up? I mean, being the, the oldest, I would imagine you had to set the example and lead in a way, especially, you know, after, let's just say you were four, five, six, seven, whatever, with, with some of your younger siblings, you've already been through it. And, and I would imagine you remember that very vividly, like being in that role where I would imagine your parents are like, hey, Gabe, can you help out? Can you do this? And uh, well, I mean, what was that like? Well, first and foremost, there was never a dull moment. You know, there was always <laughs> something happening, always yeah. a kid crying. You know, it, it was everyone always had each other's backs too growing up. But you know, there's a two-year difference between myself and all my other siblings. So my the next oldest, my brother Luke, he's two years younger than me. I don't remember too much of when he was a baby. But then my sister Isabel and Juliet, Anna and Esteban, the other four after that. I remember everything from changing their diapers to helping out with all the baby stuff, feeding them, all, all the things. It, it was nice having an active role as an older brother in, in their upbringing too. But, it, I mean, it's it definitely gives that sense of, you know, responsibility and like you're the leader of the pack. And it was kind of a lot more responsibility than a young five, six, seven year old Gabe would have liked at the time. But I look back on those memories and especially 
now as a soon-to-be father in a couple of weeks, those things, those lessons, all those experiences really have accumulated into something that I'm going to be using every day from here on out. No, that's, I mean, that's fascinating, man. We'll get more into the soon-to-be dad yeah, yeah. talk uh, Exciting a, little stuff. Bit, a little bit later on here. But, um, you know, growing up, you and your brother were two years apart. Was there a lot of competitiveness between you or between you and any of your other siblings? Or, or how did, I mean, how did that go? And when did, when did you first start getting into to sports or different activities? Or, I mean, what were you into as a kid? Well, as a, as a kid being into, I mean, I, I loved going out and exploring. My, our childhood at home was very close to a canal system back there in Edinburgh, Texas. And, okay. you know, I have very fond memories of summer days where myself, my brother, maybe my sisters, but, you know, our friends who lived in the neighborhood, we just go out to the canals, walk around, look for turtles, lizards, snakes, just use the entire day out there being outside and loving it. That's, That's awesome. what I was really into. And of course, later on, you know, around like fourth, fifth grade, the Nintendo 64 and Game Boys came into play. And, you know, we started loving yeah. that too. But I definitely always had this sense of wanting to get outside and explore and feel the sun being down my face. I loved animals, yeah. lizards and snakes, reptiles especially. That was, that was really my jam. That's really cool. So, so you, could, you could either ride your bike or walk to that, that canal system and explore, really. Yeah, yeah. And, it, it, you know, it was a, a different time, right? It was late 90s, early 2000s. So we were able to go ride our bikes and our parents didn't have a care in the world of worrying about our safety. But I, I remember either just walking on the canals, traveling for miles or getting on the bikes and, you know, driving or f cycling to the nearby next city. Yeah. Having those adventures as a kid, like it was very reminiscent of like watching the Goonies or, or any of these old like nineties adventure movies. And that's what it felt like. And it was invaluable and priceless childhood memories that I will cherish forever. I remember a lot of that growing up too. It's, you know, my parents would say, okay, it's time for you to go ride your bike, go do something. And so you'd get together with your friends and, just go ride bikes and, you know, get into something, anything, right? Whether it was like, hey, we're going to build a jump to jump our bikes off of. Is it a good idea? I don't know. You know, and there, there were some injuries that occurred along the way, but you learned and you had a good time and you, you used your imagination and went out and just got dirty. You know, and I think that there's a lot of learning that can be done in that as a kid, especially. You brought up the making jumps for your bikes and stuff. I have yes. some very precious childhood memories of you know the area of texas that i live in is very subtropical we get hurricanes in the summers in the late season i remember we had hurricane dolly i believe came through in the late 90s maybe the early 2000s but it had just ravaged the area in, in terms of you know fallen limbs and standing water everywhere and so what did we do school was canceled we got on our bikes and we started driving through all these puddles building jumps and crashing into like standing water <laughs> i think at some point we even got skimboards attached a tarp to ropes and was letting the wind pull us down the, the road right in front of our house. But little things like that, you know, not yeah. being stuck behind a screen and going out and just having fun. That was, I look back on that and I think of the generations nowadays and I hope they find ways to still experience that hands-on immersed in nature, sort of just have fun, get dirty. Like yeah, I, I couldn't agree with that more. I mean, I think there's certain aspects of technology that are great but as a kid, I think that using your imagination and getting your hands dirty and going out and doing those types of things, it's such a valuable experience. And I think that it is very important for kids to connect with that too. And that's one of the big things that Carrie and I try to do with the boys is, you know, have them just go outside and play and, and just, you know, play with dirt and sticks and, you know, whatever it might be, just go do that and use your imagination. And it's really fun to sit back and watch 
children have that imagination and explore and, and do those things. So with that type of childhood, you're exploring, you're getting out. Uh, when did you find yourself gravitating toward anything competitive? You had touched on it before we got into the, the exploration phase of my childhood. My younger brother, Luke, he's, he's just barely under two years below me. And uh, that being said, we were each other's best friends and our, our biggest support systems growing up. He was the next oldest sibling, and uh, we got to experience a lot of things together. But as the, as the firstborn, you know, I was learning how to navigate the world on my own. And then, of course, learning from how my younger siblings would navigate the world, too. I might have had some competitive desires, but I don't think I really followed them through because I didn't have anyone really to push me other than myself or my younger siblings. I actually credit my brother Luke to getting me into working out. Uh, I had liked the idea of moving weight around, like in the school, the middle school weight room at the time, but it was still very intimidating. But my brother, he and his friends were active. They would play football on the weekends, and he had gotten a membership at one of the local uh, commercial gyms and he had invited me to come along with him at one point and I saw him start to transform I start saw him start to build muscle I'm like my little brother's growing yeah you know let me get in on this too like he, he's doing some awesome things and he actually I, I really credit my brother Luke to getting me involved into working out and he might hear that and be like Gabe how could you say that like look at you compared to me nowadays but he, yeah. he really in the beginning he was the one that got me to the gym doing the squats, the bench presses, all the, the basic fundamentals of working out. And, and that was, I guess, the start of it all. That's it. So how old, how old were you? I mean, that's fascinating that your younger brother in a way, and I mean, it's, it's cool. That's really cool. I mean, to hear that and, you know, for him to push you into it and, and for you to see him changing and say, Hey, kind of what's going on here. I want, I want to kind of experience that as well. I mean, how old, how old were you? I would say this was around between like seventh, eighth, maybe ninth grade. So we're talking okay. like 12 to 14, right around that perfect age. Yeah. 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 And uh, it, you know, that was the start of working out and weight training. But I also remember when I was in high school, when we were both in high school, um, I was a senior at the time and my brother was a sophomore. He joined the swim team. And both of us hadn't grown up listening to our father talk about his experiences in high school on the swim team and how it was just one of the greatest things he ever did. And being the oldest, especially, you know, navigating high school as the firstborn, figuring out all these experiences in life in that new realm, it wasn't necessarily my first reaction to join the swim team. But when Luke joined the swim team and he started doing well, it's like that same thing again. Little bro's doing it. Yeah. Let me get involved. And he, I mean, once he got in, I got into swimming too and, we were both competitive swimmers for his sophomore year and my senior year. I finished off high school being on the swim team with my younger brother, and that was just an incredible experience to have that level of intimate support in this new territory and discovering the competitive aspect of my life and my ambitions. And yeah. swimming is what I would say really triggered it. Getting on that platform, swimming the relays or doing the individual strokes. I, I love doing the butterfly. That was Interesting. That was my favorite. But I, I also remember stepping onto that platform, waiting for that whistle, hearing it go and just giving it my all. It was me and my performance, and that was it. Just in that zone. And that triggered it. That was the start of my competitive side 
to amount to life. So you didn't know swimming at all or anything really before your senior year? Or did you do any other sports before that? No sports. I was in band up until that point. Really? So marching band and, and uh, symphonic band at the same time. But that Wait, swimming, what, what, what instrument? The French horn. Really? The French horn. I, I remember watching a lot of movies, you know, especially like the Star Wars movies. You would yeah. hear that French horn come out and just have this epic and melodic solo. And I'm like, that's the instrument I want to play. That's and cool. I did, yeah. and I tend to like more of the symphony setting. I didn't. I wasn't a big fan of marching band. That was a little too. Uh, it was just it was not the realm that I liked. I liked when the orchestra came together and you produced this massive, elaborate piece of majestic music. And yeah, that was that was what I liked. But so that's all I what, did. When did you When did you pick that up? When did you start playing? In sixth grade, so right at the start of sixth. middle school, okay. I played French horn all through middle school and through the first three years of high school. So let me ask you this: with with that or different things that you got into when you started playing the French horn, was it something where you were almost competitive with yourself with that instrument? I mean, did you practice like religiously? What was it something that you could feel you just gravitated towards you? Like, Hey, I heard that I want to do this. I'm going to practice and practice and practice to make myself good at it. Or how, where was your mind at? That's, that's what I'm trying to figure you out. You know, like, hearing you say those things now, I'm starting to realize that maybe those competitive fires were starting to burn then too, because okay, I would take, you know, my instrument home and I would sit on the front porch playing like just not necessarily the best music, but just trying to figure it out and practice for all the neighborhood to hear. But I wanted to get better. I loved the idea of being first chair. Okay. I didn't want to be second chair. I didn't want to be third chair. I wanted to be the guy who got the solos. I wanted to be the guy that everyone looked to to lead them through these pieces of music. And so I would practice my butt off. And, and I was first chair most of the time. And that was a, a trophy, a badge of honor that I was very proud to hold. So you could work by yourself solo and get better. Yeah. Now, that being said, I also did seek out, you know, like help from the assistant band directors course, or things like that. But, but I mean, yeah, that's that's you know, part of getting better and it's not maybe doing it all by yourself, but when the rubber meets the road in something like that, if you don't put the practice in to get better, even with all the coaching in the world, you're not going to get to that level and earn that spot that you wanted to earn. Yeah. And there was definitely a lot of practice sessions on my own, whether it was outside on the front porch or in my room with the sheet of music in front of me, it was something I was trying to self-improve on from day to day. That's so, so maybe there was a little bit of fire there. Is what I think saying. so too, but okay. it, it's, it's weird to think about it because it wasn't necessarily a sports setting, but it was a competitive setting. And that's, yeah. that's a very true observation that you kind of helped me realize right yeah. now. And I, that I, was one of the things, I mean, for me, I got into basketball early on. And one of the things that I loved about basketball was all I needed was a ball and maybe not even a hoop, but sometimes just a ball and a hoop. And I could go by myself. I didn't have to rely on anybody else. And I could just go practice by myself and get better. And I, I liked being in that zone where I felt like I was in control of getting better. And, and I could dictate how hard I would work to get better at that. And I could kind of live in that zone. And I, I knew, only knew if I put the shots up or I worked on different aspects of my game to get better. And it's very much the same thing. I mean, it's interesting that you transfer that to music. And then later on, being your senior year of high school, then then came swimming, and then it was, hey, I'm getting in this lane, and somebody's next to me, and I'm going to go, and there's you know there's going to be a start command and a whistle or whatever, and I'm going to go, and now I'm going to try to beat you at that, but you know you're still competing to get first chair, like you said. 
you know, so it's it's different. It's it's fascinating. That's fascinating to me. It's quite profound to look back at all these things chronologically and think of the observation of how progress, self-progress and improvement and watching your efforts constructively build and build and yield something great over time. Yeah. That's one of the most powerful motivating forces that the individual can experience. And whether it was from going for first chair in band or trying to get the next position up or a better time in swimming to now those paved the way to my performance increases throughout the sport that I am so actively involved in now. I mean, it's, it's really weird to trace those all the way back to as early as sixth grade, but yeah, it, I mean, it's true. Yeah. So, so when your brother kind of introduced you or started you with training, is that something when you first started training, did you fall in love with it immediately or did you kind of dabble in it a little bit? And, and how did that look after say, you know, like you said, seventh grade around that time, seventh, eighth grade into high school. I mean, was it something that you continued to do or it was kind of on and off or how did that look? It was on and off. And it, I mean, it was very basic training, you know, yeah. when we're in middle school, early high school, it's like chest and biceps, right? Of like course. let's get the arms pumped up. What you, know. you can see in the mirror. Is exactly. What's the squat yeah. days aren't necessarily <laughs> nearly as close to as important as they are now, but that is, that is a very true story for a lot of people. Yeah. For sure. it, yeah. You know, it was like, Oh my, my triceps are starting to look better or, you know, the sleeves are starting to fit tighter. And those little realizations, like it's pretty powerful or the bench press goes up five pounds one week or, Man, I remember the day I could finally do a plate. Yes. I remember the first time picking up a barbell and just be like, this is how heavy they are. This 45-pound bar is, is hefty. Yes. But that first time being able to do a 45-pound plate on each side, that was a monumental day. And that was probably somewhere around uh, the early part of, of my swimming year in high school, so senior year. I think I, my, I topped out at 155 on that year on bench. And that was a big deal for me because I hadn't really done any free weight bench. It had been a lot of machines up until that point. Yeah, well, we're working up to a plate is a, is a big deal at the start, especially you know getting but getting a twenty five for a lot of people, and then working up to a forty five, and you know starting to get the movement pattern down and and to get stronger. I mean, it's it's something that uh, uh, it's fun to think back, you know, to when you're starting and, and those accomplishments, and then comes two plates, and then comes three plates, and all these milestones along the way that, especially at that age, are a big deal, and the confidence that comes from that you start to feel so much better about yourself. And like you said, the shirt aspect. So one of the things that I said early on, especially as I was trying to gain more weight, as I I said, shirts are like fish tanks, right? So if you put on, I would always force myself to wear a little bit bigger shirt and go in the opposite direction. Because a lot of guys will go for the schmedium look, right? Oh, look at me, I'm filling out the shirt. My arms are so tight. I would always get try to buy one size bigger, because I said, well, if it's like a fish tank, I'm going to have to grow to fill it up, right? So I'm going to force myself to do that. And then I, I know that I'm getting bigger by filling out this bigger shirt. So it was just a, it was a mental game that I played. But it's, it's funny to hear you say that, like the shirt's fitting tighter. And that's such a big thing to guys out there, I think, when you're younger and you get into training. Because it's a representation of the work paying off, right? Like you you start to feel better about yourself and you're like, oh, I'm... I'm seeing more more uh, um, size, and I'm, I'm you know I'm filling out my shirt, and it's just something good about putting on a shirt, and it's a little bit tighter. Well, that's exactly it too. You know, while building yourself down this path, you like you said, you start to build up confidence as well. And I remember very early on, you know, if I was in the weight room with my brother, I wanted to be there with him. I wouldn't want to go to the school weight room and go lift with all the football players. I, like my confidence just wasn't there. Like these guys are putting two plates, three plates up on bench press. What am I going to look like compared to them? But 
after I started getting better, after I started pushing and swimming and my performance was getting, was improving from week to week, from meet to meet, I remember finishing off that swimming season and I would just, as soon as I was done with my last class of the day, I'd change, go straight, straight to the high school weight room. And I'd just work out there with the football players, even though I was a swimmer. Yeah. Because I had gained that confidence because I knew my work was paying off and I was growing both in body and mind. And that's quite an invaluable thing for a young individual to realize. But I completely attribute that to the constructive process, you know, and it, it's a, it, it, it's an injustice for people not to feel that to some degree. And you yeah. have to have these endeavors that yield that, I feel like. So with the training, what, what point would you say it set in where you were really, I'm going to use the word addicted, but it, it had to be part of your life. At what point in that, in that process, you know, from when you started to being a senior where you're like, all right, I'm done with practice. I'm going to go train and go in the weight room. And I have this confidence now. Uh, where did that, where would you say at the, at that point, what point was it where you were, you were addicted to it? Now it might not have been addicted to weight training, but training, the idea of training in general really started as soon as I started swimming. Okay. You know, I, I, I think to that first swim practice that I went to and just how much I felt like my butt got kicked just from the warmups and seeing the other athletes and how well they were able to just cruise through everything. And it just seemed like it was as easy to them as walking. And I yeah. wanted that. And so I knew the only way to do that was to be continuously practicing and getting better, whether it was walking, running, swimming in the pool for laps, or doing weights in the weight room. I knew that in order to achieve those goals, I had to put in the effort. So at that point, I knew that training had to have some sort of keystones focus, you know, in my week, whether it's three times a week, two times a week, four times a week, five times a week. I needed to know that I was putting the efforts in to get better. So that aspect of self-improvement and that realization started with swimming. But I wouldn't say weights took their core center point in my focus until a couple years later on after high school. Interesting. That's that's really interesting. So you're 18 years old. How just for a size comparison, where were you at in high school size-wise and um you know, I'm assuming you got in a lot better shape with swimming and with that physical activity and that type of stuff. I mean, where were you at size-wise? Prior to swimming, you know, the early years of high school, I was a little bit shorter, probably around like 5'6 to 5'8 and I, I hadn't got, I was chubby at the time too. I was at 233 at that point. Okay. But junior year, I stretched out. And senior year, I was the same si the same height I, as I am now, six foot two. And I had graduated senior year of high school, six foot two at 165 pounds. Wow. So I was a, a string bean, but a, but a swimmer, a swimmer's build. Yeah. And very lean, very, very lean, but just as tall as I am now. Were you sad at all that you didn't start swimming until your senior year? A little bit. A little bit, but all those voices of regret, it, it, there was never a point where they over, they cast a shadow on the voices of appreciation, you know, it, it, and it's weird to think of a young individual being able to rationalize these things, but all the times where I felt regretful of not having done it sooner, I realized that I did it now and I'm enjoying it so much now, you know, with my brother, just from the enjoyment, the experience that I'm getting, that's invaluable on its own. So it's like, I can complain and be regretful as much as I want for all the time that has been passed. Yeah. Or I can be grateful for what I'm doing now and think of what comes next down the road. And those are very profound lessons for a young individual to have, but somehow, some way I was able to think that way. And that's I'm very, very glad I was able to. Yeah. There's a lot, a lot of power in that being in the moment and being grateful 
for what's going on and what's happening and what the future holds. Right. And I was looking forward to not so much looking in the rear view mirror, so to speak, at what time had passed and or has passed in your life. And this is, I think there's so much power in that just in life in general, but especially at that age, like you said, that's, that's crazy that that's what you were thinking. You know, I attribute a lot of that also to th those lessons to thinking of my freshman, my sophomore year of high school, being shorter, being chubby and having the self-esteem issues that go along with that during, during the, the crazy times of puberty 100%. and feeling that level of confidence spark and that level of body image confidence too that came along with swimming yeah and just the overall improvement in quality of life i was happy i was chasing things positively knowing how i felt then compared to how i felt when i was shorter and chubby in sophomore year yeah those realizations were what really solidified my positive outlook on like i'm here and i'm doing this now yeah now is what it's all about and and the future of what comes next because i'm having a really good time yeah it's it's fascinating to me with with what you're talking about there, you know, being shorter and like you said, a little bit chubbier, that type of stuff, the confidence level difference had to be tremendous from, you know, walking out of high school as a senior, feeling the way that you felt. Uh, so what, where did you take it from there? Right. So you've got this new level of confidence. You're walking out of, out of high school. I mean, did you try to continue it all with the swimming or that was done? That chapter was closed and you were moving on the competitive swimming. I had stopped, but that summer of high school, I had continued to swim as a lifeguard. And I worked all that summer as a lifeguard at the city pool. So I kept myself in good swimming shape. And, uh, it, I mean, it was a daily part of my routine for warm-ups for pool time. Uh, I would swim, you know, a quarter mile, half mile. I was still in good swimming shape, but I wasn't doing it competitively. Yeah. That being said, that summer of high school going into freshman year of college, that was kind of like that weird time in people's lives where – you know, I was a goody two-shoes nerd throughout high school. But when you graduate high school and all of your friends are 18 and they're getting their freedoms, that's where, you know, like the high school partying phase kind of takes over. So that summer, you know, I was working as, as a lifeguard, but I was also going out to parties with friends. And that, that you know, necessary experiences to a certain degree, but that also puts like the competitive athletic endeavors on the back burner because you're just having so much fun enjoying these new things. Yeah, you know, and going into freshman year of college, it was still like, you know, you're you're in college now. Parties are happening every every week. It seems like so, the athletic side kind of took a back burner, and I wasn't doing anything competitively. I was, you know, going to school, keeping up my grades, but when school was done, I would go and you know party with my cousin at his apartment or stuff like that. And so at that at that point, what was your goal? What was your goal to? be in life i mean what were you what were you studying what were your ambitions i had started college on a track for pre-med so a major in biology and minor in chemistry i've loved the sciences my entire life you know from the start of my early childhood up until i still love i'm a major nerd to this day but uh i i wanted to no matter how much i wanted to let loose on the weekends my grades always were in the center point of my focus i i wanted that 4.0 GPA. I wanted to excel in all of my classes. So I put the time in on the books. I so got that was in, the focus. That was the focus, academics okay. at the time. And uh, I would say probably around that time too, I had gotten into my first long-term relationship that okay. lasted about two and a half years. Okay. And that was the major time consumer. Well, that, that took up the majority of my attention was, you know, you have academics and then you have a relationship and everything else kind of didn't seem 
as important in comparison to that younger version of myself. Interesting. So, yeah. so you're going down that, that road. Were you training still or was that kind of like, hey, that had taken a backseat too? It had taken a backseat as well. You know, I was doing things here and there, maybe running like a half mile, full mile here and there, but not really doing any weights, not, okay. not, not doing anything majorly athletic. So you go through freshman, sophomore year of college, and then you said about that like two years after high school is where that came in. How did that come back in? I actually attribute that switch to the breakup, the breakup of that long-term okay. relationship. And it was, you know, there was certain, uh, it, it was a breakup that I had to be the one to break up with this person. because Was they, it was it a, let me ask this, and you don't have to go into too much detail, but was it something that it wasn't a great situation? Was it, was it uh, a drain on your time in a negative way, that relationship? Because I know a lot of early relationships can be that, and sometimes it's hard to say, hey, look, I've got to get out of this because it's not great for me. I mean, was it that type of situation or was it was what, a situation you need to get out? It was a situation where we were both very young, both in college, but this person had uh, had cheated on me. And I was just like, that's that's it. Sure. That's it. We're done. The trust is and broken. The trust yeah. is broken. We're moving yeah. on. But then with that immediate severance of this thing that was taking up all my attention and focus, I needed to fill that void and I needed to feel better about myself because it's a really crappy feeling when someone you love you know, goes and completely just dishonors that trust. And, 100%. And it sucks. So I needed to build that confidence back up. And I think to those early days training with my brother and realizing the confidence enhancements through the training, the self-improvement, the positive, constructive uh, outlook that yielded on life. And I got back in the weight room. There you go. I got back in the weight room. And I think back to early days, even in my childhood, of watching World's Strongest Man on TV with my father and my grandfather on Thanksgiving mornings. And, you know, back then and as a child, it's, I'm watching superheroes. I'm watching real-life superheroes. How could I ever be like them? But there was that little spark that was like, if I could, that would be really awesome. And so at this point, I wanted to get bigger. I wanted to feel better about myself. I, I know there were times throughout that relationship where I could tell that the person I was with, when, when other guys, you know, who were maybe bigger or more confident or whatever would, would come in or would be around them. I would notice certain behaviors. I was like, I don't want to feel like the smaller guy. I don't want to feel like the weaker guy. I want to feel like the confident, strong guy. And so in that weight room, I started to find that, you know, with a big frame that I had, I was putting on weight. I was putting on muscle. I was making gains from week to week. And I realized that, hey, there's something here. Yeah. There's something here that I didn't realize before because I wasn't really trying for strength, but I was using a very bodybuilding style type training approach and it was yielding tremendous results. So the confidence was going up, the body weight, the musculature was going up and it was, that was the moment where I started really changing. I would say that was around 2000, maybe 2011, I would okay. say. Okay. Yeah. So I was about 20, 21 years old at the time. So you mentioned watching World's Strongest Man or seeing it. Was that the first point that you had seen it or was that something you had seen when you were even younger that was just kind of like, oh, I like watching this. I mean, did you gravitate toward it before that point? Or it was like, hey, now I'm training. Now I'm really starting to pay attention to this. I mean, wh when did that well, when did that seed kind of, you know, get planted? The initial seed got planted just from tradi family traditions. You know, okay. it, it was as simple as on Thanksgiving mornings, they'd watch the Macy's Day Parade, and then they'd flip it to the old reruns of, of classic World's Strongest Man. That's and, awesome. That's and awesome. it's something about being there with dad and grandpa and, you know, be, having the full bellies and a feast style yeah. setting and it, it was just good times did your dad train at all 
No, no, he didn't. Train. You said he did swimming. Right? He did swimming, but okay. he was always a he. He loved being outside in nature, also, and that's where I get a lot of my appreciation. So for some of that experience came from your dad and and that type of thing. I mean, it's it's interesting because it wasn't as I don't want to say as accepted, but it wasn't as normal. Uh, you know, for I would say, you know, our parents. My parents are a little bit older than yours, I'm sure, but you know, it just wasn't as readily available, right? It right. wasn't quite as accepted, so you know, to, to be in some sport for sure was, was kind of normal, but it's just different. And it's interesting to hear that, that even for, you know, your family who wasn't necessarily like super into training, they would turn on, you know, world's strongest man. It's, it's, um, it's, and we can talk more about that. It's, it's got a certain appeal to people who even don't do it, you know, or, or maybe, I mean, you started to have that seed of aspirations of, wow, that would be cool look at these guys are kind of larger than life. And that's fascinating to me to hear that. Well, that's the, the, the essence of strongman, right? The spectacle for everyone to, for, for the, the average Joe to see and be like, that is amazing. I want to watch more of this. And you know, that's, that's what sucked in the little three, four, five, six year old Gabe and dad and grandpa at the same time. None of us did anything remotely close to strongman, but we saw this spectacular display of strength in these larger than life athletes I mean, you just couldn't turn away. Yeah. So who, in in who, I'm going to ask you this, who are the, like the, maybe the first competitor or first uh, competitors that you remember? Lou Ferrigno. Okay. Very early stages, strong man, uh, Kaz and John Paul. Okay. Samerson also. And then, um, uh, is it Magnus Samuelson? I think also he, he had the famous like handlebar mustache, correct? Yes. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I remember that mustache very early on, but then of course, lots of other athletes who I just wasn't necessarily aware of their names at the time, but I, I remember those, those guys. For Man. Sure. So some of the very, very early names. Oh yeah. I mean, they they were classic reruns playing on Thanksgiving morning. That's awesome, man. That's so cool. So, so you're now half about halfway through college and you're getting bigger, you're getting stronger, you're gaining all that confidence and, and you know, starting to have the seed of, wow, I, I, I feel like I've got a knack for this. This is something I'm really gravitating towards. So at that point, where did you, where did you take it from them? Did you keep with more of the, you called it bodybuilding training, which is very normal to start with, you know, by the way, but uh, did you keep rolling with that? And you're just like, Hey, I'm going in here. I feel good. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to try to maybe start eating a little bit more, training heavier, building myself up and just gaining this confidence where, I mean, where did that shift come, uh, at that point in time? Yeah. So it was always, I was always my own coach and I, as a, someone who had a big background in science and a deep understanding of anatomy and physiology and physics, I felt very well equipped to be able to just research different training styles and apply them myself without the need of a direct coach. And I remember looking towards old programs by Dorian Yates, you know, the blood, sweat, interesting and glory or blood, sweat and guts. I can't remember what it was. Called, yeah. But, yeah. But in following his, his training methods of the, a lot of pushing to failure stuff, but I also had a very deep understanding of, you know, how important nutrition was. So from that early point of starting and wanting to bulk up, I knew that I didn't need to be eating to maintain my current self. I needed to be eating with the intentions of supporting the goal weight or how big I want it to be. That's how, what I need to be eating like if I wanted to be putting on that extra mass. And I just, I kept getting bigger. And I remember at, at some point I was around 230 pounds where I had, um, I had met my wife. She had come to the, the local gym that I was working at at the time. I was working the front desk staff and, and helping to run and maintain the gym. And 
she had seen me at some point. It's it's quite. I'm going to bring this up, and she's going to laugh that I brought it up. <laughs> no, it's great. Yeah. She, uh, I, I was cleaning the machines, and they had us dressed in like a, a black polo shirt tucked into some khaki pants. There you go. Yeah. And I was cleaning the machine, and she told me that she was looking up, and my back was facing her, and she's just like, "Wow, who is that with such a great ass?" Oh, that's <laughs> and, awesome. And it was the butt that sucked her in, man. <laughs> but then I, it, I, she said, "I saw you turn around." I was like, "Oh my gosh, that's Gabe." And it was a very different Gabe that she had remembered from when we were friends early on. And uh, that's amazing. And, that's you know, amazing. she's she was a uh, a high school crush of mine. So I had met her. She was my brother's age, part of my brother's circle of friends, two years younger than me. So I knew her in middle school. I had a crush on her while she was in middle school. And I was in early high school, but we we had stayed friends through the time. And and I joked that I was kept in the friend zone. The friend that. zone that that's a spot that a lot of guys end up in and they can't get out of. Quite a stubborn spot for sure. But yes. you know, we were very good friends. We stayed up late on the phones at night, and it, it was it was really cool to have. She was one of the first females that I had an intimate connection with over through someone I could talk to and just be myself open with. But, you know, we were friends throughout. We kept our friendship throughout middle school and high school. But, you know, we're talking now fast forward to 2012, 2011. So we had both grown up a little bit and I had obviously changed a lot. I put on a lot of mass. I got got that booty that sucked. There you go, man. I I was doing deadlifts and squats at the time and, and, you know, and it was do your deadlifts and squats <laughs> deadlifts and squats draw women in that's, yeah that's true man. tried and proven and they pull yeah. men out of the friend zone they, that's, they, that's they, hey does. man that's uh that's maybe some kind to kind of quote you can go, roll with man deadlifts yeah. get you out of the friend zone there you go the king of all lifts for many reasons right <laughs> but uh you that's know I, I hadn't gained all the mass through this bodybuilding time but I, I had built this impressive muscular physique yeah and uh, we, I we mean, had, your, your confidence has to be, I would imagine, just like you're so much more confident. You're approaching life in that way. And, and it, 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 I say this a lot to people. It translates over to real life in so many different ways when you start training and when you start feeling that way. And that's why I've always said I feel like everybody should train in some capacity because it has so much carryover to, to normal life, even if your aspirations are not to go lift the heaviest weight or, or, you know, do strong man or powerlifting or, or anything really, but just to, to add training to your day, it's such a positive thing that so many people can benefit from. Oh, absolutely. And I, a lot of that newfound confidence and that the, the positive body image issues, uh, or the positive body image reflection, it definitely helped me navigate the initial, um, early stages of that that flirting back and forth with her again, now that we yeah. have grown up. And so you see her, she sees you in the gym. Uh-huh. And she says something to you at this point or yeah, like a little small talk, but you know, I could obviously pick up on that. There was, there was a little smile. There were some undertones there. And then, you know, like maybe that message came through later on that day on Facebook, like, Oh, look who messaged me. I haven't talked to her in a while. And then, you know, she, she's, she was the one that, that sent the first message at that point. Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of like this. uh, Oh, it's great. It was great to see you sort of thing. Like it had been a while and yeah, you know, the conversation just kept going on from there, but I hadn't, a lot more confidence and I was able to navigate in a way to where she was someone who I was very interested in, in much earlier, many years before. Yeah. And that interest didn't die. And we had both only gotten older and we had both, both of us gotten more attractive. I mean, since yeah. that, you know, hey, we're in a place in life where we're not kids anymore. You know, yeah. we're, we're young adults. And it, I mean, that was the start of it all. And so, you know, the relate, we started dating in 2012 and you know, I was still so you're around 21 at this point, 21, 22 at this point. And, you know, we started dating in 2012. I was still training at the gym. I met her at the gym. So she was 
obviously training at the time too. And it was very easy for us in our early stages of dating to go get partner workouts at the gym. She very quickly became my favorite training partner. That's awesome. And it's a weird thing to see me benching three plus plates and have little 130 pound her, you know, yeah. being my spotter. But she was my favorite training partner. We, we knew how each other, uh, we knew each other's vibes. We knew how to read each other and how to support each other. And it was, it was great. And at one point she was friends with someone who was involved with one of the local rugby teams that, that practiced at the university. And she went out to some practices and wanted to, you know, help get started a women's rugby team. And it was one of those things, rugby practices would last three hours. And so I'm like, well, Bianca's spending three hours of her day here. You know, I want to be with her. Rugby sounds fun. It sounds competitive. It, I've seen it on TV. It looks like something I want to do. So I went out and I started playing rugby with the local, with the local team. And it was, uh, it was that same sort of realization when on my first practice at swimming. Yeah. When we do the warm-up, and my butt just gets totally kicked, and we haven't even started practice yet. I'm like, I want to get better. I want to get better. I see these other athletes, and they're a high level of performance. I want to be like them. Yeah. So I kept getting, I kept going to rugby practices. I kept improving there, playing at the games, competing in the circuit. And there was a point where you know I'm, I've, I'm about 230, 240 pounds at the time. Still doing. So you, I mean, you put on a significant amount of size, significant amount of yeah. size, and a significant amount of strength. Yeah, yeah I'm going sure. up against guys. I remember my first rugby match the team from san marcos texas had a big samoan athlete i'm talking like 330 plus pounds and legs the size of tree trunks and i remember i was playing you know as a as a um i was playing as a lock and we were the forwards you know we were there the ones getting the direct hits okay. with the opposing team and there were many times where it was me versus this big Samoan dude. Yeah. But a lot of the foundation that I had built through deadlifts, through squats, through these big compound powerlifting motions, they had built the core strength and the total body power to where I had saw this guy at the start of the game and I was fearing him a little bit, but I went into each hit hard and not holding back. And there were times where I floored him. That's all. Awesome. And I was able to keep running through past him. And I'm like this guy outweighs me by almost a hundred pounds and I am holding my own. Sure. So that realization of power and that I definitely belong here. That I've built myself in a way to where I can hold my own. Yeah. That was incredible. Very incredible to experience. And I wanted to just continue to get better. And I think back towards those early days of, you know, watching world's strongest man on TV. And I think back to how I've built this amazing base in myself, this bigger physique and stronger physique and it seemed like the natural thing to do to reach out to a local strongman that I had heard of to start training with him. And I used it as my excuse to get better on the rugby field. Yeah. But there was also, you know, those embers burning from early on, like, hey, I want to try some of this strongman stuff. This is, I've seen it before. I want to lift the stones. I want to pull trucks. And it, it was just, you know, as quick as jumping in on that first strongman Saturday with him that I realized I have what it takes to do this. That's cool. And that realization of power of my deadlift strength, my overhead strength, that's where it all began. That's yeah. where the strongman side of Gabe Bangham began was seeking out improving better on the rugby field. And so you were 20, what, 22, 23? 22 at the time. Okay. Yeah. 22. This was 2012. So it was just the first day of training that it was like, I love this. Yeah. I loved it. And I knew this was late 2022 and I knew of a competition that was happening in early 2023. Okay. And I started putting my efforts towards that. And I was still doing rugby at the time. Still doing rugby, playing rugby games on the weekends. And then, 
You know, it was a crazy thing to compete in rugby one day and then go to strongman training on Sunday. It's different, yeah. Different. <laughs> but you know, a lot of those lessons also gave me the invaluable insight on how to measure your overall performance and re- recovery capacity on a week weekly basis. For sure, for sure. But, that, um, that's fascinating, man. So you're you're got your feet wet, so to speak, with this, and I'm I'm assuming they had a lot of the implements and and things that you needed to train with. So were you going to a normal gym during the week and then going there, or were you doing all your training? No, there? it was normal gym during the week. I was still working at this local gym. It was called Freedom Fitness, and uh, I had met my wife there while I was working as a supervisor for the front desk staff, but through my continued performance increases, you know, I didn't want to just be behind the desk and cleaning machines. I yeah. started working with the personal training company that was that called that gym home, and so I was a personal trainer. Perfect. And later on, I found myself as the head trainer on that location, and you know, I, I kept improving in my own life, and that reflected in a lot of the other lives that I helped coach and train. And that was a really cool thing. But So that was something you gravitated toward early with training people, helping them out, inspiring them. And, Definitely. And, uh, I mean, it's still something you do now. You coach people and, and help them out, and we can talk more about that for sure. But going into this, this strongman arena, right, you set your goals on this first contest. What was that like? Uh, putting in all the work in the months of prep, it was it was incredible to see my numbers build up. I, I had started strongman training with this local athlete, and I think I had pulled my best deadlift was six thirty five at the time. And over the course of the build up to that prep, I had gotten a seven hundred pound deadlift. That's awesome. And my main there was a max deadlift event in this first competition, and my big goal for that contest, I wanted to pull seven twenty five. I wanted seven plates and a quarter on each side. I wanted to do it, and I did just that. And I, I have some photos of that day from that contest. I'm wearing those old Vibram five finger toe shoes at yeah, the time. We got yeah. a buzz cut going on. Wearing my rugby shirt for that competition, and I won that contest. It was yeah. my first strongman competition. It was at the the River Rat Gym in Far Texas, and I won. And it was to to win that first strongman competition after the months of prep I had put into it that just further solidified the notion that this is a path that I want to follow and just give it my all. Yeah. And you know, it winning that first contest, it was uh, just a week before my birthday after the contest, that next weekend of training, another big pivotal point had happened in my strongman career or my strongman life. I should say it, would, it wasn't a career at that point, but I was training the axle clean and press on strongman Sunday with this, with the crew that we had, at the at the guys and this house. is a week after that con- that first a week con- after the okay. contest this was literally the day after my birthday and on the axle clean and press i had never done it before and i we had 250 on the bar we had warmed up to that point and i had paused midway up the clean and for i don't know why i had paused but then that pull the underhand pulled so hard my bicep snapped right off and I remember feeling that and hearing it. It was like being a kid playing with silly putty. And when you pull it too quick, that very quick, and you you felt it. Yep. And in that moment, you know, the bicep retracts. And my buddy who'd been doing strongman for a while, he looks at me, he's like, I see his jaw drop. And he's like, you tore your bicep. And my whole life just was like, I, I burst into tears because I had just won my first strongman contest. Yeah. I had seen nothing but golden light shining on the path ahead. Yep. And then I was faced with the reality that I needed surgery. And yep. that really sucked. But it was an, an invaluable lesson to learn how real the repercussions of doing things the wrong way or just how quickly from zero to 60 the have, the, the nature of this is. Yeah, And I had, of course, I, I got my bicep repair. I was very fortunate to be able to have my parents supportive of me 
at the time. You know, they they helped pay, they paid for the surgery and they made sure that I was put back together. And yeah. I remember I I got that surgery four days after the injury. Very a very quick turnover. Injury. That is very quick. Yeah, from what I've learned great. over the years, yeah. that is a much quicker than a lot of the athletes are yeah, able to. You have a very short window after a bicep tear uh, to get it repaired before you start to have problems exactly. with that. So the faster you can get it done, the better for sure. And uh, I mean, it's fascinating. Uh, and you probably know this about me too. Uh, my bicep on an axle uh, at the Arnold, right? So yeah. that's a, you know, a story that I've, I've shared before, but um, it'll be interesting to, I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, going from that high point a week later, here we go. Bicep tear surgery, four days later, what, where was your head? Where was your head with that? Even facing the surgery and the operation, there was never a single doubt in my mind that strongman was was anything but something that I belonged in. So my head was still very focused on it. It was like, all right, let's get this surgery done. Let's do some research and find out what the best path forward is in terms of recovery. And let's just let's put in the work and get it done. I mean, every day that goes by, I'm getting closer to being able to get back to competition. But, you know, having a, a torn bicep, that put rugby on the back burner. I'm, sure. I'm, not, I'm not catching balls. I'm not running. I'm not tackling people with the torn bicep. So rugby was on the back burner. And even when I recovered, I felt so attached to strongman and, and just getting stronger and being a strong person that I could not rationalize the dividing my efforts and my recovery capacity up between rugby and strongman. I knew that, you know, if I, if I did both, I was not going to be great at both. I would be good at both, but I could not be the level that I wanted to be, you know, in, in either. And more important, I knew my heart wasn't strong, man. Yeah. And so through that. Well, that's a, that's an important realization to make, though. It is. And, and it's a tough one to make, too, because I would still yep. go out to the local dive bar and see all the guys out there drinking after practice, having a good time. Like, Gabe, when are you going to come back out, man? We need your power out there on the field. Like, <laughs> I don't think it's going to happen, guys. It's uh, And, I, you know, through the recovery for the biceps injury, I was still training. You know, I was... I was doing a lot of unilateral training. I had remembered reading some articles that if you keep up with the training on your healthy side, your body is less inclined to atrophy on the recovering side just because it wants to keep that level of symmetry from right to left. And having that stimulus on the right, your atrophy capacity will be much lower than it would versus otherwise. So I was still doing unilateral arms training, but I was doing a lot of squatting. I was able to still thankfully do deadlift. So my deadlift never really took a, a back burner. I didn't have to wear a strap either. Just the way that the bicep was repaired, I was able to maintain an overhand grip and use straps and still hit my deadlift hard. How how soon did you start doing that after the repair? Uh, I want to say after the initial first six weeks, I was able to start getting back to okay. just heavy deadlifts. So you, st- I mean, it wasn't like immediate. It wasn't immediate. I mean, I was still deadlifting, but you know, I wasn't doing six plates. I was doing no, maybe like two twenty five. Yeah. But reps. once you could straighten your arm out and be comfortable exactly. with it, you could strap in and yeah, that's. That's very much the same for me. It was, you know, you you can um, do that, but first and foremost, you got to get the full range of motion back and that type of thing. But it sounds like you handled it great, man. I did the exact same thing with training the other side and didn't really skip a beat. To be fair, didn't you know, skip a I beat. worked on I worked on things I needed to work on. So it sounds like you did the same thing, which is awesome. And knowing that my endeavors were more along the route of strength, I wanted to. Uh, I adopted more of a powerlifting style training. I knew that I could squat, I could deadlift, and I could bench press. And I knew that having those three core lifts and my regimen centered around them, I could still be making the gains and I wasn't going to be losing any, I was actually going to still be making progress even though I couldn't do the strongman stuff. 
And I, at the time, I was following Brandon Lilly. He, you know, his cube method for strongman was something, or his cube method for powerlifting. And then knowing that Josh Thigpen had done the cube method for strongman also, keeping myself very in tune with that style of training rotation, being able to do things with, you know, the squat, the deadlift, and, and the bench press as my core lifts. I was still doing competitions. I was doing uh, deadlift competitions at the university. I did a bench press competition in one of the neighboring cities. I kept the, com- the competitive fires burning. And it took me the better part of a year to get back to strongman. I remember the hardest thing for me to get back to doing was stones. Yeah. I just never felt comfortable with that initial bent elbow pull trying yeah. to lift these rocks off the ground. It was tough to get back to. But uh, my wife was competing strongman, strongman at the same time. She was, of course, coming out to training on those strongman Sundays with the local athletes. That's really cool, man. So that you guys were able to continue the working relationship or working out relationship you know into that as well so she was i would imagine super supportive of you and and great to have in your corner as you were coming back from this and rehabbing and and that type of thing and having having that support system and like you said your parents being supportive of it as well is something that's so valuable and it's neat to hear that you know it's something that that i was very fortunate to have as well my parents were really supportive of me i mean my first gym i took over their garage literally they couldn't park in there anymore because that's where I was going to train. And they were totally cool with it and didn't quite know everything about strongman and what I was trying to do, but they were supportive. So it's, it's neat to hear you had that support. And then your, I guess at that point, future wife yeah. uh, was in your corner as well. And you're, and you're coming back from this. So, you know, I, re- I remember the same thing, man, the stones lifting the first uh, heavier stone. It was such an amp up uh, to do that for me. And I was like, you know what? I'm ready. I know I'm healed. I know I'm, I've, I've done what I need to do. I'm just going to grab this thing. And it was kind of, you, you, you do it the first time and then it happens and you're just like, Oh my God. Okay, cool. I'm good. And then you go on, you go on. And and eventually once you do it enough, you work through those mental hurdles that you have to work through. And so you're a year out from this and then you're, you pick another contest to compete in at that point. Or how did that go? Well, let me, so getting back to the Stones and the Strongman, there was actually a key influential figure in helping me to realize or to get over those mental hurdles that I faced. Okay. You know, so Bianca was still competing throughout this whole time and she competed at a, a nationals qualifier and she she won that competition and she qualified to Strongman Corp Nationals or NAS at the time yeah. in Reno. And this was 2014, 2014 nationals. And I was still recovering. I still wasn't able to do Stones at the time. And... So I went there with her to her first nationals, knowing that this was a platform that I knew I belonged at. So I'm there, of course, first and foremost, supporting her and everything, but also observing and watching very closely the heavyweight athletes. And John Anderson was a judge there at the time, and I knew who John was. John, I, John is a character. He's he a is character a character, <laughs> and he is, is well-versed in many different styles of competition. Yes, And yes. as a judge there, you know, it, I got to talk to him a couple times, and one of the times I knew he had torn a bicep before and I was like, John, how do you get over the mental hurdles with getting back to strongman training? I'm finding it so hard to get back to stone lifting. And he just looks at me. He's like, Gabe, at a certain point, you just got to man up and stop being a little bitch and pick the stone up. I'm like, All right. Yes, <laughs> sir. And he has that unique deep voice saying that. So it's like, Hey, Gabe, you got to get in there and just do it and don't be a pussy. Let's go. That's exactly it, man. And, you know, having someone who I I knew had been at World's Strongest Man, who was a pro wrestler and a 
a pro bodybuilder. Yeah. Having him tell me that, it, it, it really just clicked. Something it clicked. stuck. And so I remember That's getting cool. back That's from cool. nationals and going back to some stones, and I was like, you know, I know the stone is only 175 pounds. Let's just lift it up. The yeah. mental, you know, all that you're feeling is probably just scar tissue making you think. It's been a year, Gabe. Come on. Yes. Those tendons are locked in place. Let's go. That's and right. I did. And those stones just started getting bigger and bigger. And before I knew it, I was back in a strongman contest. So how did you feel from a, a observation standpoint, watching that level with the heavyweights you're paying attention to? I mean, mentally at that point, had you seen those guys at that level before, or that was the first experience watching them? And and obviously you said you, you felt like that's where you should be. Did you feel that way watching them or, or what was your perspective there? Uh, I watched these guys knowing 100% that I could do what they were. Maybe there was definitely guys who were really strong and Instagram was already a part of my life at that time. So there, a lot of these guys, you know, the Hodge brothers, uh, Alan Colley, um, even Martins Lisis, who was, just a, a twig compared to what he is now at the yeah, time. I remember yeah. seeing him do pistol squats as a warm-up for a car deadlift at that show. But yeah. <laughs> these were guys that, that I had all seen on Instagram. And so getting to meet them in person, talking with them, and then watching them in the moment at this national championship, yeah. realizing that these were the trials that I know I need to be facing and seeing them uh, do these, these things, seeing the way that they conduct themselves, their techniques, their level of strength. It just was more affirmation that this is where I belong. And I took, even though I wasn't competing and I was a spectator at the time, I took all that experience yep. and learned from every single bit that I could. And it yep. definitely, I came out of that nationals as a spectator just as strong or just as much of an increase as someone who had been there competing because I was just trying to take that much away from it. It's it's really important to have those experiences and to see that level and, and to visualize yourself doing it as well and being there. But it's neat that you were able to see that because then you can kind of take that experience back to training and say, all right, here's what I've got. I got to see my competition and where I need to be. So you go back to training with a fire, I would assume at that point that, all right, I'm going to do this and I'm going to make it happen. Yeah. I mean, and of course, with those words from John Anderson too, like that fire was all too all too hot by the time I got back home and started yeah. training and it was reignited and you know getting those mental victories on doing the stones again and everything just clicking with this newfound experience of watching these high level athletes of watching what it took for them to win and I, that was the competition where Alan Colley won his pro card and seeing that path right before me like from local to regional to nationals to pro level the path is paved. This is it, Gabe. You know what you got to do. Let's put the nose to the grindstone and get to work. So how did you get to that point then? Your first Nationals was 15? My first Nationals was the next year, 2015. Okay. Okay. And so I was doing state-level competitions, uh, getting my qualifications. I, I think the next competition that I had entered in was only a few months after Nationals, after that 2014 Nationals. And I, I got first place. I won my Nationals invite. And... From then forward, up until Nationals next year, it was just about let's just get strong. Let's hone all the events, hone all the skill. And so Nationals 2015 came around. Uh, it was, I think that one was in Quad Cities, Iowa for the first time. And I had placed third overall. Okay. I had gotten my Arnold invite. And I was up again. And third overall, I mean, this I was weighing... I weighed in just barely under 300, so I was not part of the super heavies okay. at the time. But seeing how my score 
measured up to the guys who were 100 pounds heavier than me. It's just all these factors that just add even more fuel to the fire. Like, Gabe, this is your path, man. You can do this. Yeah, it's, I mean, getting third there is a big, it got to be a big, you know, feather in your cap, so to speak, and, and reinforcing all of these things you've been thinking and, and reinforcing all the hard work as well, everything you've been putting into that. So did you feel like, and I already know your answer to this, but it, you, you've probably felt like you learned so much from going through that experience the year before you saw it. Now you're there. Now you're on the podium, third place, you know, going forward, gaining all these experiences. You're, and I, I just from our short talks that we've had, I can tell that you're learning and learning and learning and just getting better and better and then going back and applying it. You know, and this is something that up and comers, the sooner you learn to do that with yourself, and, and I say even for myself, I'll still learn stuff from contests that I do. You know, and I'm always trying to uh, always trying to improve in some way, shape, or form. It might be the smallest little thing, but I'm picking something up, I'm learning something different, and and you're taking that wealth of knowledge then to the next contest and the next contest. So where did your path go from there? Your third place there and and moving forward the next step was the arnold i qualified for the arnold with that third place podium and and so i knew the arnold was coming up in like five or six months ahead up in march and and to, to have my first nationals that i was competing in to podium and to get my qualification to the world championships for the amateurs i mean this was huge this was massive and i did not want to let this opportunity go by without me fully giving it my all so even just coming out of that nationals what like you said watching all those videos over and over and over dissecting every minute detail and finding all the areas i could improve i applied that through all my training and next came the arnold and my first world championships the world stage a two-day competition and that's 2016 this is the 2016 arnold, okay my, my first world championships and i we had gone through all the preliminary qualifiers the qualifying rounds and i remember Placing well and doing well in every event. And then we came time to that last qualifying event. I was going up against a Polish athlete, Mateusz Ostazewski. Okay. And we were neck and neck tied in, or like it was anyone's game between us, whoever won that last event. And I remember picking up the last sandbag in the loading medley and he picked his up vertical. I knew from my training that if I picked it up horizontal, it would give me more leg space to move. And sure enough, he picked it up before I did. But I picked mine up horizontal and I just took off. That's all. Awesome. And I beat him. And I finished going into the finals in first place out of everyone on this world stage. And it, another pivotal moment where it's just, Gabe, you belong here. Yep. And so going into the finals, my first finals at my first Arnold, we were backstage warming up. And that was actually the first time I met you. You had in just 2016. come in 2016. Okay. You had you were just coming down. From the main stage after loading the world record Atlas Stone, still tacky up, covered in tacky. You got your your <laughs> sleeves all taped up, and yeah. I just look. I'm like, this guy is so much bigger than than the movies and the YouTube <laughs> do him justice. But I, we have a picture that that we took that day, and, and just the size of your fist next to mine in that picture. It was it was one of those moments like that's awesome where where you realize that you're somewhere where you belong because you are among the top caliber of athletes and. I had wound up finishing that Arnold in fourth place out of, out of the best of the world's Which amateurs. is, I mean, pretty incredible from, you know, if you look at it, really. I mean, this is, that's not an easy contest. And Nationals go into that. I mean, you're you're walking in and, and you know, third place in Nationals, fourth place there. It's, that's awesome, man. I mean, it's it's got to be such a reinforcement, again, to your hard work and where you're going and 
and where things are taking you at that point. You know, so leaving the Arnold, what what was the the path then? Oh, Brian, I was hungry, man. I, yeah. I was so, you know, finishing the finals in first or finishing the qualifiers, going to the finals in first, and then coming out in fourth overall. That was like, Gabe, you can do this. It's like, right, let's, let's right go there. for it. Let's yeah. get that pro card, whatever it takes. Let's, let's do it. And I just hit training hard. I hit training hard, and I kept immersing myself in competitions. I always felt like... If the sooner for for me, I always felt the sooner I can get to that next biggest stage, yeah, the sooner I will conquer it. Yep. You know, I don't want to be one of these guys who never feels good enough or ready. I want to be the guy who builds myself as best as I can and just immerses myself in the challenge and let's see where I stack up because no matter what happens, I will come out of that experience stronger and more able for what comes next. And after the Arnold, I knew that I knew where I belonged. And I knew I wanted to go against pros. So there was a Giants Live qualifier in Martinsville, Indiana. And it was a pro-am. So pros were able to, or amateurs were able to compete against pros. And I heard about this competition. I'm like, I want in. And I drove all the way across the country with my wife and another friend to compete there. And it was a 26-hour drive. Wow, that's awesome. I had just gotten my Chevy Colorado at the time, too. So that was the inaugural road trip. Breaking it in for sure. <laughs> breaking it in, traveling up there. And then I remember these guys were like, this amateur drove all the way across the country from South Texas to be here. And I remember I had met Rob Kearney for the first time there, competed with him. Marshall yeah. White was there. Johnny Wasisco. Just a lot of the guys that I know are still the high-level pros nowadays. But that was the first time I got to compete against them. And it was a tough contest, a very tough contest. And I, I wound up finishing probably somewhere like towards the – maybe like 12 to 11 out of 16 athletes. So not last, but definitely stacked up. And I had pulled a really big deadlift. We were doing a a tire axle deadlift, and I beat a lot of the pros on that deadlift. I knew I had a strong deadlift, but getting to have it measure against pros, I mean, that that was another moment. Like, hey, you've got some real power here, Gabe. Let's really... Let's keep honing in because it's, it sounds like, you know, early on, you mentioned with your first contest, the deadlift was a big thing and pulling that 725 and now, you know, different contests you've done. Is it just kind of a natural connection that you started to form with the deadlift and it was just something you gravitated towards and were good at? So you, you kind of became known for that. Cause I, I mean, before I had met you um, and I don't remember where I had heard it, but you know, maybe going into one of the nationals or something, somebody was saying something about your deadlift, your deadlift training, you know, that you were pulling something big and, you know, that type of thing. So it's definitely something that I think a lot of people have started to talk to talk about you with regard to your deadlift. I mean, is that where it started getting reinforced? Like, okay, I'm, I'm pretty good at deadlifting ability here. Seeing how it stacked up against the pros. And then of course in the at the Arnold World Championships that that in twenty sixteen I got first place in the deadlift event with a pretty obscene amount of reps. And it yeah. It was that much higher than everyone else where it was like you you are a deadlifter game. And but that may have been where I heard about it too, sixteen. Somebody who said something about it there. Maybe but, it was Obi because Obi was watching right front and center in that okay, uh, for that one. Okay. He might have seen it and yeah. we, all, we all know how Obi loves his deadlift. So no I, it's <laughs> awesome. And, and I mean it's it's neat to to hear about that and you know especially when you're on that stage and can stand out uh in a particular event i mean that's that's huge man so but, you go to this pro-am and and i feel like for me i actually went to the way that it used to work uh when i was coming up was you would go from the amateur contest and pro-ams were everything that's all it was there was no you know kind of level uh to it if you wanted to earn your pro card you went to a pro-am 
the pros competed and then the top placing amateur got their pro card that day. So, you know, I remember for me going to my first one, I drove from Colorado to St. Louis and it was, I had literally just started strong, man. I wasn't even, I didn't even have any equipment, you know, cause back then it wasn't very easily accessible. So I was just like, Hey, I'm going to do this. And my parents were like, all right, well, we'll go with you. So it's like, I took a road trip. They drove out to watch and I just, you know, kind of rode or drove with them or whatever. And, uh, I got to that contest and I didn't have social media. I didn't have anything. It was, you mailed your entry in and you just entered. So I didn't know who was going. I didn't know who was showing up and I just knew the events. And I said, all right, I'm going to go. And, you know, I went that day and, and, um, you know, that contest I walked into and I remember the guys being so big and strong and especially compared to, I had only done two kind of local amateur contests, one here in Colorado, one in New Mexico. And then this was, not even three, two and a half months in, then I was like, all right, I'm going to go do this pro-am because I, I want it. I'm hungry. And uh, that was an experience walking away from that because it's a different level of guys there that I had to compete against. And so I walked out and I did not place well. I was, you know, 13th out of maybe, I don't know, 16, 17, 18 athletes. And it was like, wow, it was eye-opening. Like I had some stuff to work on. But again, it, it was just that hunger to go compete and I wanted to test myself against better athletes. And it sounds very similar to you. Hey, this is open. I'm going to hop in the truck. I'm driving. I'm going. And we're just, we're going to lay it all out on the line and see what happens. And I think that quality is very important. You know, yeah. instead of being scared in a way to say, well, is it going to be perfect for me? Is it not? It's, it's like there's an opportunity there. I'm taking that opportunity and I'm going to learn from it. And I may not win, but I'm going to get better. And I need this experience to get better. And I'm hung, I'm hungry for that competing and hungry for that opportunity. So it's neat to hear that, man. It's it's so reminiscent of, of what I was kind of going through as well. You're you're just hopping the car and you drive. And you say, I'm showing up and I'm here and let's go. And you know, you walk away from that. And I'm I'm sure, you know, you get to meet uh, a lot of these guys, like you mentioned, that that were there that you've seen, and you you get to line up against them yeah. and you get to you get to lay it on the line and see where you're at and and you know kind of walk with walk away from that contest with a certain level of experience that you can't get anywhere else you're not going to get that experience by staying at home and watching you you have to go do it you Absolutely. have to put yourself out there and it is it's totally naive for people to think that you can just train yourself and go into a contest and just dominate you know sure it happens every now and then but that's an outlier you know that's the the athletes who are at the top of the game are there because they have an accumulate an accumulation of years and years of experience of constantly testing themselves and measuring themselves up to what is the standard in this sport and it's that experience that yields the greatness and you have to earn it and I see it all too much in whether it's people that I coach or just people that I'm aware of that they never think they're good enough and they are always their worst enemy in holding themselves back. They never get that invaluable experience and they're always behind their closed doors and yep. it's, it's an injustice to their competitive ambitions and it's really, it really hinders their progress. But that was never, that was never something that I wanted for myself. I, I wanted to, to, to always have those tests. I yep. wanted those trials. I embraced them. So how, how from that point, where does the pro card come in? Where, where do you kind of make that leap or what, what's, cause that was 2016 Arnold. That contest was in 2016 as well. Okay. So I didn't get my pro card until 2019. Okay. But I tried every step of the way and there were so, I can, 
it takes more than one hand to count the amount of half point second place finishes oh boy that i had where i just missed that pro card by such a small minute error and i, I remember a specific competition it was southeast strongest man in florida another competition that was yielding a, it was a platinum plus competition yielding a pro card and i drove from south texas you know 18 hours all the way to the tip of florida to go do it uh and it was a. Uh, I had been keeping Trey Mitchell was at that competition too, and then another high level strongman at the time, Davis Dilly. And we were going through the events. I was keeping a high placing. I got first in the yoke. That was that was actually the first time I won money from an event. Alan Colley had put some that's, money on the line. Yeah, great, he, he was like, Whoever gets first place in the yoke, I will pay you some money because I'm a good yoker and I respect that. And I got first place in the yoke, and it was crazy because I didn't think I did that well in the yoke. And I thought I moved a lot slower than I did. And they showed me my time and it just blew everyone out of the water. So That's that was awesome. cool on its own. But we had a brutal keg carry medley for that one. It was six kegs staggered over a 75-foot course. Wow, okay. Six kegs. And you had to start from that first one, take it down to a loading mat, run back, and just back and forth for all six of these. And by the time I got to one of the last kegs, I didn't have it up high enough. And I was so fatigued from all these other points that I had fumbled it. I dropped it and I had to pick it back up and then that let one other athlete get slightly ahead of me oh, points. Man. And it was that small margin of points that wound up having uh, the other athlete get, <laughs> get a half point ahead of me in the end. Davis Dilly won his pro card at that competition and a uh, very strong athlete. Uh, he kind of won his pro card and stopped competing after that. Okay. So there was always that like, man, if I had just been a little bit, better and not fumbled the keg yep. or gotten more points then i would have had my pro card and i would be using it i would be doing all these competitions and really making waves in the strongman world but that those little narrow losses brian they really added more and more fuel to the fire that even though i kept being faced with these narrow shortcomings yeah. i learned from every one of them that increased the specialist aspect of you know, I, I wanted to be perfect at everything i didn't want to have these small newbie errors you know yeah. i wanted to have pro level strength pro level skill and all the competitions i did you know more national championships i did more more arnold world championships in 2019 i did the strongman corp national championships uh it had gotten rescheduled because it was originally supposed to be in florida hurricane dorian came through and they had to reschedule it and move it to quad cities iowa another month later so athletes are having to adapt, and yep. some athletes are griping and moaning like, oh, this curveball we've been prepping so long. I'm like, the one who wants it is going to adapt and make it happen. And I did just that. My prep was on point leading up to Florida, and it continued to remain on point leading up to the rescheduled day in Iowa, and I dominated. I dominated, and I, I knew what I was going there for, and I did just that. Prior, 2019, 2018 was a pivotal year for me in Strongman. I, my wife and I got married in 2018, in May of 2018, and I had taken over my gym AlphaFit in 26, late 2016, I believe. And along with taking over AlphaFit, and I had never taken any business classes. I, I, was very, I was very much a rookie in the business world. I was learning a lot of hard lessons, and with those hard lessons came a lot of stress. And it would show itself here and then in my competition uh, ability. And I would say 2017 was a very foggy year for me. And even 2018, leading up to when Bianca and I got married, 
competition had taken a bit of a, a I want to say a back burner, but it was definitely buffered a little bit. Late 2018, I did a competition uh, right here in Colorado, in Denver. And it was it was a USS competition, my first time competing outside of Strawman Corporation, but I dominated that contest. And I was up against uh, some very impressive athletes there. But I remember winning that competition, and that was like a big turnaround for me, where I, I had just prepped hard for it. We had just relocated my gym to a new place and was starting from the ground up even facing a lot of the stress, getting out of the stressful environment of the old gym, the old building, starting a new road, seeing that victory in late 2018. I knew that I was on an upward trend. I signed up for California Strongest Man in March of 2019. I knew it was a Platinum Plus show. I could qualify for the Arnold there. They weren't doing pro cards anymore, but I won that competition. I dominated that one. And I, I have a fond memory of Martins Lisi's being a judge there watching the deadlift event. And it was 700 pounds for max reps, and I pulled 10 reps. And that gave me a very easy victory on the event. And Martins comes up to me after. He's like, Gabe, I like your deadlift. You use a lot of legs. And I'm like, <laughs> what, what did World Strongest Man just tell me right there? But, but yeah. uh, you know, he uh, that, that was another just a really good feel-good thing to hear. But that victory at California Strongest Man in 2019, yeah. that momentum riding right after the foggy time of my career. I was on an upward trend. And so going into that 2019 Nationals later on in the year, it was clear to me that I was going to get my pro card. And I went there with the intent. I just did just that. Yeah, became a pro in 2019. I mean, it sounds like your path was unique in a lot of ways, right? Because you have, you know, compared to, say, someone like me, I competed and I did that that pro-am, went to another one. This, so that was in January. I went to another one in May. And then there happened to just be another one in June. So the one one in May, I went from getting that, you know, 13th or whatever place I got in that one to getting third. And then I won it, my pro card the next month. So I was basically from the time I started strongman to the time I was a pro was about six months, give or take. But I was hungry for it. And I, you know, made a big change from not training with any of the equipment to actually getting a few implements that a guy welded for me, helped me tremendously. And then I was able to take that pass. So very different to what you went through and and your buildup and like you said those second places those half points those little errors or, or changes in the contest that will eat at you a lot of times you learn a lot from winning for sure but you also can in a lot of ways learn more from losing right and where do you need to be perfect and i i feel in a lot of ways from from hearing you talk about it you probably were able to refine a lot of things and you looked at details a lot more closely because a half a point will eat at you i mean i know probably better than anybody about ties and 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 these type of things second places that were close and you know when you when you start to analyze contests that way it can teach you a lot but when you bring it back to training it makes the importance of training so much more clear right? Because you're going in there and when you, when you're applying it to your training, you're not training for five more reps. You're training for one when you need it, right? So every training session becomes, is this the training session that I'm going to gain that one more rep? Or am I going to get just a half a second faster or or two tenths of a second faster? All those things become so magnified as you're going through and, and training for these things to be the best, to be the best that you can be on the day and you're hungry you're hungry for this competition and and you know to come that close and and then to go through 
the things that you went through with your life, you know, and you're calling it a foggy period, but that's a big undertaking, man. You took over a gym, you moved a gym, right? You're getting married. This is a big life change. And so, you know, to stay on track during that type of period is good. It's, and, and in a lot of ways, I guarantee that that taught you a lot about yourself and, you know, you're forming your life as well, right? You're, you're now a, a business owner, and you, you have a gym that is relying on you that you, in a lot of ways, are married to as well because you're, the, the success of that gym is dependent on you and, and your wife and what you guys put into it and, and how you apply yourselves to that. So being able to take that energy into the gym, but then also apply it to your competition and you know now you're a new husband and, and there's a lot of things going on. So it's neat to to hear you go through that, as you called it, a foggy period, to having some clarity of like, look, I came in and dominated because up until this point, you hadn't used that word dominated. I dominated this contest and then I dominated this contest. And what you're doing, I like to call it a lot of positive momentum, right? So you're you're building this positive momentum where you're walking into these contests at that point. And, and I guarantee you're walking into training with the same mental uh, ability to think I'm going to dominate. I'm going to dominate. And you just have all this positive momentum that's building up, building up, building up into 2019. And then, you know, 2019, I guess, is the the pro card experience where you get this finally, finally, it's, you know, all these second places, all these experiences, everything I've gone through now, here it is, right? I, I've kind of reached my goal, but at that point, now you've got the pro card and you have to move forward from the pro card, right? right. So how, how was that? What was your thought process? Because somebody made a comment to me and I don't, I don't know that this is a hundred percent true, but when, when I earned mine, uh, in that contest, somebody said something along the lines of, okay, today you got your pro card. You're the best amateur in the country, but you're, you're also now the worst pro, which I would argue with. Cause I guarantee I was not the worst pro at that point. I could have beat somebody. I promise that, but you know, it's kind of like that perspective of, okay, now I'm the top. I'm into this next class. I've now leveled up to that, that spot. But what was your mentality? What was your mentality? I had a voice like that also, someone telling me something similar. And, you know, there was that realization too, but, you know, there was all this buildup to that moment. So you can see it in any of the pictures that I took at the awards ceremony for nationals. I've just got the biggest cheese and smile on my face because Rightfully I so. did what I set out to do and it felt damn good. But that next day, I knew it was the start of the next phase. Like you said, made it to the top of the amateurs. Now I got to work my way up from the bottom of the pros. And it was a, it was kind of like starting over on a new journey, you know, yeah. a, a new journey where it's a new, a new caliber of athlete. You know, this is, we've been working to get to this point so that we can work for the ultimate goals. Yes. You know, it, it, it was always, I always knew that it was not an end point. Like some of the other guys that I come across. You over see the years, a lot of like, guys, like you mentioned earlier, you know, certain guys, it's, they, they almost know it's the end of their game. Right? And, and total yeah. respect for them for that. Totally. Yep. Everyone's life is their own to live, and I'm not yep. going to cast judgment on the way no. that they do if, no. unless it's harming someone. But, you know, mad respect to the guys who still go out, they get their pro card, and, and if they feel like that's it for them, so be it. But yeah. there was that part for that aspect that was like, man, I know I can put that to a lot more use, so let me make sure yeah. I get it mine. But yeah. I did acknowledge the fact that it was, I knew that I was going to be setting on a another adventure that was a bigger a bigger adventure a lot higher stakes but that was what i wanted the beauty I've, I've always held true to myself that the beauty is not 
so much in the end point, but it's in the journey to get there. That's yes. where you learn the most about yourself. Talking about the things that I faced, you know, I look back on all those, whether it's the half point losses or the, the foggy time in my life where I was, you know, taking over all of the business sides of, of running a gym that all just added to the strength and the philosophy and who I am today. It made me even better and stronger for it. And I, I really love having that part of me actualized to face what comes next yeah. and the trials that are ahead because I feel more well-equipped because of them. But I knew it was, it, it was taking on a whole bigger world and I had one more amateur contest. You know, I qualified for the Arnold world championships one more time. It was my last amateur show and it was 2020. Uh, I, I went in that one. Like I knew I'm a pro, like I I'm a pro now. Even yep. though this is the amateur world championships, I'm gonna I want to give it my all because of course, there's that invite to the Arnold Classic yes. you know, on the line, and I wanted sure. that, yep. and I gave it my all. I went into the the finals, I believe, also, and I think I finished in first place going into the finals. But uh, yeah, I did because I I dominated that deadlift event. I, yeah. I really did. We had a deadlift medley, and and that really sealed the deal for me. But the f the finals, we had a circus dumbbell, and we had a hand overhand sled drag, and two of the Russian athletes just really turned up on that last day and they got first and second. I got third, but very narrow margins. Yeah. It was just those last two events were not my strong suits compared to them, but I gave it my all and I still podiumed and it was my highest placing at the Arnold. Yeah. But, uh, that was how I wrapped up my amateur career. We could say, and then that paved the way for what came next later on in the year which was my pro debut at World's Strongest Man 2020. And yeah, so let's let's get into that. Let's man. get into that. What, yeah, I mean, what a contest a, to have as your pro debut. Yeah, it's quite a quite a pro debut. I mean, what were what were you thinking? What were you thinking? I mean, you get the call up, you're in. Well, I got the call up as an amateur. Yeah. And, you know, of course, 2020 we're uh we're COVID, right? Yes. COVID, yeah. We're right in the middle of the pandemic and of course, you know, the the main athletes that they originally had on the roster, some people just didn't have the ability to to get there. overcome whatever hardships they face because of the pandemic we were all going through and yeah so i got the call that i was an alternate and i mean just getting that call is like whoa it's what? exciting man. what yeah, yeah, for sure and then the, a couple of weeks later the call came in like you're no longer an alternate you're on the roster and that realization like holy hell my first pro show is going to be the big one big one like for sure. world's strongest man 2020 this is it and there was, it was kind of a lot of those same feelings towards going into my first nationals, you know, like all these guys who are clearly the best in the world, you know, I'm competing with Brian Shaw here. Like, oh my God, yeah. it's, it's, and I'm, it's kind of like that freshman going into high school, right? Yeah. That, that first day of school and you're just walking among athletes who are casting big, big shadows. But it was just an incredible experience. I knew that that was where I belong. You know, we talked about my philosophy of the sooner you get to that big stage, the sooner you conquer it. Yeah. And so I was ready to just give it my all and fully immerse myself in the experience. And I mean, I went in I, charging hard into that competition. I, I built the biggest, strongest version of myself that there had been up until that point. So I felt very well equipped for that show. But even uh, leading up into that prep, there was quite a bit of, of hardships going into this. And not, not many people know this. But right at the time, I want to say it was three weeks out of World's Strongest Man in 2020. Okay. I had just, I was with Cerberus Strength at the time, and they had just come out with a soft belt. And I had seen a lot of other athletes do the double belt combo, where they 
would put on the soft belt and then the lever belt on top of that. Yep. And I was like, let me try this out. I mean, more, more back support, and it's only going to make you better, right? So I had gone for a heavy deadlift max, and it was I had never used a double belt before. And I pulled a PR, which at the time for a raw lift was 910. Okay. It, was, it was 10 pounds higher than my heaviest raw lift ever, and I pulled a PR. But on the way up with that lift, with all that compression, Brian, I gave myself a hiatal hernia. Part oh, of my man. stomach got pushed through my diaphragm. It was on the same side of my diaphragm as my lungs. So there was wow. two weeks leading up to that show where I'm feeling like I just got some sort of gastric digestive issue. And I I had no idea. I mean, I knew hiatal hernias could happen. Yeah. But it was the last thing in my mind as to what actually happened. I was like, I must have food poisoning. I was trying everything. I was working with my doctor and getting colon cleansings, like whatever could alleviate and make my job better because I was in pain and misery. Yeah. After 12 days of nothing working, you know, and going back and forth with my doctor, we finally were able to just figure out like, you've got your stomach, a portion of your stomach is on the wrong side of your diaphragm. And we've got to find ways to get it to suck right back through. And what an opportune time. My pro debut at World's Strongest Man, three weeks out and I have... My stomach is herniated, you know, like how how freaking fitting, right? Yeah. But, you know, uh, knowing that that was what it was, then it was a clear path forward. Okay, we got to do abdominal exercises that crunch and, you know, self-massages that really help push it down. And it probably took maybe like four or five more days beyond that point to get the stomach to go back there. But once, once it was right on the same side of the diaphragm again, we're set. And I was... I was not going to wear a double belt again for a long time. I tell you that, but it was just one of those things like where you get served a big slice of, you didn't know this could happen, but it did. And you have more experience now thinking of how you can prevent things like that happening in the future. But that's crazy. So you're dealing with that. You're trying to overcome that. Plus you've got this looming world strongest man contest. That's your pro debut there. And, and uh, you know, it's, it's another obstacle you have to overcome. You get to the contest and what were you thinking? I mean, walking in, you know, you got the qualifying group. We had that year was a hurricane, a tropical storm, whatever, that messed everything up, right? So they had to redo the events. There was a couple event changes that happened very, very last minute, which again was a curveball for everybody. Just like you said, with the nationals you did where the date moved, this is the same thing, right? Like a lot of us weren't prepared for those events and they just had to move it inside because of the storm and everybody's dealing with it in different ways so what was that's a a unique year number one to go into world's strongest man because it was strange but then the event changes come as well on top so i can i can only imagine i mean i know that i dealt with it a certain way and i've been through a lot in my career but having your pro world's strongest man debut happening and all these things are going on i mean that's a whole different thing man you know i was it was one of those things where i've that has always been the ultimate goal to compete at that stage. Yeah. And even with all the hardships and obstacles that I faced getting to that point, even in the recent weeks leading up to it, I was just so damn happy to be there. You know, I, I wanted to give it my all and just really just take as much of it away as I could. Yeah. I and mean, I, I, I went into that competition knowing that I have what it takes to get to the finals. Yeah. You know, Trey Mitchell is a great buddy of mine. We both started competing strongman right at the same time, both Texas athletes, we, there were so many competitions where we would be the last two athletes gunning for that first place. He'd win one show, I'd win another show. And seeing how in 2019 he made it to the finals, I'm like, 
Trey made it to the finals. I can make it to the finals. Yeah, you know, I've I've beat him on things before, but uh, and I knew my strengths. And I knew where I measured up, and I knew I could do it. Yeah. So there was no lack of confidence on my end. But then there was also, you know, all the the curveballs that you mentioned. You know, yeah. I, I'm from a part of Texas that we get hurricanes, like I said. And one of my biggest fears was like I don't want to be in Florida for a hurricane because I know how Florida gets ravaged by these things. And sure enough, we had a hurricane in October right when we were there. Yeah. But, you know, with all those things going on, I'm like, this is my first year here. And, yeah. you know, with the event changes, and I really loved and respected how you stood up for us as the athletes and making sure that the TV side of things didn't get, didn't overlook us as, you know, the reason why this is happening in the first place. And I loved how having your voice to care for the athletes, and I'm a newbie there. I'm not... I'm not going to be the one to stand up and say anything. I'm going to be the one who's just going to sit back and like, well, let's let Brian talk for us. Let's let, let's see what what they say. And I, I mean, I'm gonna. I love what he's saying. Let me just go with with that and yeah. as it plays out. But I was just happy to be there. And whatever wound up happening, you know, competing in a convention center with no crowd versus you know having done it on the beachfront, you know, so be it. This is what it is, and I'm yeah. here. Let's make the most of it. So yeah. that's what it was. So you went in. I, I know that. Uh, you had a deadlift in your group, right? That, and you did well on that. Yeah. And uh, I think you did all right on the farmers, if I remember. I did okay or, on the farmers. You know, yeah. grip over the years historically has not been one of my strong suits. Uh, I think 2018 and 2019, I had a lot of ligament injuries in my fingers. You know, the little pulleys that wrap around the knuckles, those ring-shaped ligaments that bind the tendons down. Uh, I've had those snap quite a few times in, in those years leading up to it. So it was not that I didn't have a strong grip. It's just that every time I would build up my strength, I would have to take a little step back because of these injuries. So going into the day one of the qualifying rounds with farmers as the first event. Yeah. I was very, uh, worried that I was going to underperform and I don't think I underperformed, but it was, I was definitely not. Yeah. I, I did not. I was not one of the best performers by a long shot on that. So yeah. there was that, but I knew I had deadlift in my qualifying rounds and I'm a deadlifter. Yeah. And so I knew I was going to just pull out all the stops and give it everything. And I, I, uh, got second place to, to Jerry. Yeah. And that, and, you know, Jerry just so cool and collectively pulled out one extra rep, not even phased. I'm like, well, yeah, of course it's Jerry, Frigid, <laughs> you know, but yeah. I felt really good about my deadlift event. And so I finished that day. One of the finals feeling in a good spot, you know, ready to take, what came next in yeah. day two. But that day one was, wow. I mean, they told us to be out the door by what? 8, 8 a.m. Oh, it's, it, the, the timeline was not kept. Let's was, put, I think, sucked. I think all of us finished the day probably what? Eight or nine o'clock at night. Right. And this is the start of the, literally the start of world's strongest man. And because of the, the storm and they were trying to start outside and pushing it back. Now all of our rest day was also gone which a lot of people don't realize going between the finals, which very much for me changed my game plan yeah. in a big way. And, you know, that's a whole different story. But going into day two for you, now you get another curveball, right? Like that's... Yeah, well, and, you know, so day two, I wake up, and even even at the end of day one, you know, we finally get back to the hotel like 9, 10 p.m. and super late dinner, and we know we got day two the next day, but... When I'm at the dinner table, I, I feel like I still haven't recovered. I still feel like my heart's beating quick. Like I'm, I'm still, it feels like I'm catching my breath, but it's been an hour since I deadlifted. Yeah. And I'm there eating dinner. And I'm like, what, what? Maybe I just need a good night's sleep. Yeah. And I wake up the next morning and I don't feel like I slept at all. On the oh, bus boy. ride over to the convention center, I'm, 
I'm falling asleep on the bus ride over there and it's like something's up and I, I, I could feel like my heart was pounding, you know, like it, it, it felt like there was a little rabbit beating in my chest. Interesting. And so I'm like, you know what? This, this is a serious sport. I, I know how quickly things can happen in this sport. Yeah. I owe it to myself to like, let me at least talk to the doctors and make them aware yeah. that I feel like something's off. And so I went and I talked to the, the medical staff on hand. They, they hooked me up to some diagnostic machines to check my heart rate and everything. And lo and behold, I was in AFib, atrial fibrillation. My heart was skipping beats. And it, why it was skipping beats was totally unbeknownst at the time. But, you know, the medical staff at World's Strongest Men, I mean, the last thing they want is for anyone to black out or total or yeah. even worse when they've got, I know we had log on that day. We're putting yeah. a massive log up overhead. Yep. If I, if I put a demand on my heart, that's too tall of an order to fill the lights go out and that thing comes down on top of me. I mean, we, we can easily be talking about a life or death situation. There. Absolutely. Yeah. So their biggest concern was my safety and they, you know, it, it freaking sucked, man. They pulled me out of the competition. Yeah. But, and, and I could, I can understand why, but, so happy to be there so ready for the trials and knowing that i have what it takes yeah. to make it to the finals when they told me that i mean i remember i just i just took i just took off i just walked down the halls at the convention center i mean the the, the, the tears were coming down yeah, man. I, not a lot of people understand that level of commitment and desire and you know getting to that that level and then having that happen not a people not a lot of people have experienced that yeah, right? right and there's a lot of emotion that comes along with that because of what you've gone through to get there right. and now here you are you're on that stage and so you you get this told to you okay well we're you know based on you coming to us and saying this it's not safe we're pulling you out whatever where do you go from there well i mean like i said i was walking around the convention to take a lap and to clear my i mean just to deal with the it felt like a swift blow of a hammer coming down on me. This news that they delivered, I, I just wanted to make them aware. Like, yeah. is there something they can give me, or, or just to like make them know, like in case. But little last thing I thought was they're going to pull me out of the contest. So, yeah. you know, I'm just walking away and I'm just overcome with emotion and just like the, the, the waterworks and everything like that. And then I just feel a hand on my shoulder. And I, I mean, I'm, I have already walked like a good 500 feet away from the competition floor. Yeah. I feel a big hand on my shoulder. I turn around, it's Bobby Thompson and he's there and he's just, he was, I just, I just needed a shoulder to put my head on at the time. Yeah. It was just, it, it one of, was one of those moments where like, this is a guy who I know I'm going to consider to be a friend for the rest of my life because he was there for me in a moment where I needed sure. it most. And it, it was a powerful moment. But from that on, you know, it was coming to terms with the deal they they sent me to the hospital you know riding in an ambulance from the convention center to the hospital there in florida just i felt so defeated man so yeah, defeated i can imagine yeah and you know they get me there i'm in the the er and they have me hooked up to machines they've got ivs in me loading me with medication and i'm i'm there still in my world's strongest man shirt and shorts and it's like i've gone from being surrounded with all of my friends with the, the this elite group of athletes that I know I belong amongst. And now I'm just alone in an ER room or in a hospital room, yeah. like lonely as hell, like knowing I'm missing everything that's going on there. And it, it really sucked. But yeah, once they got my heart rate to calm down, it, it, it had calmed down enough to where they felt comfortable discharging me after staying there for a night. 
okay. uh, that I was, I was very adamant. Like, I don't want to be here. Like you, yeah. you want me to be in a low stress situation. This ain't it. Like get me, <laughs> you're giving me anxiety. Yeah. This is worse. <laughs> like, let me go back. I'm not going to be competing. I'm already out, but let me go back. I want to, I want to watch these guys. I want to support my friends. Yeah. Like Trey has been a, like a brother to me. I want to see him. He, he's qualified to the, the finals. You know, yeah. I want to, or uh, I totally understand that. Yeah. So they let you out, you get back to the contest and obviously you you've gone through this it's like this roller coaster right i can only imagine of emotion and and anger and sadness and you know it just all these things i can i can you know hearing you talk about it i'm putting myself in that position and it's not a good position to be in so you know you get back to the contest uh head back from there what what was the reason behind it so we didn't know the reason exactly you i i it was kind of like you're you're served up with this big monumental thing that went wrong and like anything else like any injury that happens that we face you start taking the the i guess i call it the sherlock holmes approach like seeing all the ways you can dissect like all the factors all the variables that could have attributed to it you know yeah. i'm thinking that okay we've got all these changes in events happening we've got a day that was spread out way longer than it should be the meals you know like we were told we we're going to go on at a certain point and it's been actually way longer since that last meal that we had that and i had put on a ton of weight for the show you know i was walking around at 300 i think i weighed 333 okay was the highest i measured going into that show so this was the heaviest game that there has ever been even to this day and i was strong as hell but i mean i'm like Maybe I just put too much of an emphasis on gaining weight and not enough of an emphasis on cardio. Yeah. And you're trying to figure out all these things over the years. You know, maybe it was, you know, certain sugars I was taking. Maybe it was mineral deficiencies, things that I had gone back with my doctor after World Strongest Man to try to figure this out because we cannot have it happen again. Of I course. will I do not want to face a a unfortunate occurrence of this happening in a similar situation where i make it to a high level contest and i have to pull out halfway through like absolutely and and i also know like the way that the world's strongest man medical staff works like if this happened again you know like my chances of being able to compete are even further diminished yeah you know so i wanted to get this thing addressed and so we're we thinking that we're finding these things you know maybe it's magnesium or taurine or maybe you need to gain too much weight like let's keep up with the cardio i was doing cardio with every training session yeah at that point just making sure that the heart could keep up and it's been an ongoing uh ongoing thing to try to make sure that it doesn't happen again and even just this year so we're or i say this year 2021 late 2021 we finally found out with dialing it in with my doctor that it was nothing even close to as serious as we thought it was. It's not mineral deficiencies. It's not the heart being unhealthy. It's um, it's it's none none of these grave impending things that I don't, I won't have as much control over. It's gonna sound weird, and no, and no one really knows this between you know me and my wife and my doctor. But I'm totally fine sharing it because when I went through this at World's Strongest Man in 2020, I was open with it. I, I was putting out you know Instagram lives at the time, like yeah, letting people I'm know doing. what happened. And I had a lot of other people around the world reach out to me saying that they have chronic AFib or that they're dealing with AFib, and then you know they're it's it's refreshing in a sense to see someone at the highest level of the strongman sport going through this because they can relate to that and they can kind of 
you know, how are you going about this? Or this is how I went. Like sharing yeah. the experiences, you know, there's that level of unity in it. And in, when you're faced with something that happens to your heart, yeah, there's that level of fear of unknown and that level of isolation. Like I've got something wrong with my engine, you know, and if, if something happens that I'm done, like that's yeah. In the worst case scenario, I'm, I'm dead. <laughs> and so when you have someone you can relate to, who's pushing their performance to a high level, it's refreshing to know that there's that level of connection. So I have no problem talking about this, but yeah. I have what is called cold heart AFib. And it's a very weird phenomenon that if I have anything that is too cold, go down my esophagus. The esophagus passes so closely to that left ventricle of the heart. If there is enough insulated cold in that food or drink matter that's going down, it'll essentially cause the heart to shiver and send it into AFib. And to where it'll correct itself over time, especially if I use medication to help yeah. correct it. But that's the trigger, Brian. And every time that I, at World's Strongest Man, they have those coolers filled with cold Gatorade. Really cold, yeah. Really cold Gatorade. And yeah. there was a there was two other occurrences outside of World's Strongest Man where I had, you know, I, I'm in South Texas. It's freaking hot all the time. That yeah. I would keep a cold Gatorade, not in the fridge, but in the freezer, so I could go there. And you it's know, ice I, cold. And it's I ice cold. And within seconds of drinking it, I would feel that sensation in my heart. And I'm like, wait, what the hell happened? Did I push myself too hard in training? And wow. it's looking back on these things and, like, seeing that, oh, there was Gatorade here. There was a slushy here. I remember there was one point where it, it had resolved itself very quick, but even a very cold glass of milk late at night, right before bed, just chugging it for the sake of getting some nutrients down. Yeah. And then within like instantly feeling that, that, that rabbit sensation in the heart. And that was it. And I'm, I'm sure you might have noticed in the time that I've spent here with you, I have not put ice in my drinks. For no. That. Yeah. La actually last night, you were asking for water without ice. Yeah. And, and I uh, didn't think anything of it. Some people just don't really like well, ice. Well, now you get water. to learn why. But yeah. <laughs> it's so it makes a lot of sense now. There's yeah. only been three triggers that, that I know of, and it's a slushy, cold Gatorade, or, or milk, or ice cream, like cold, super cold really dairy cold. products. So yeah. anything that has you know either these, these high concentrations of sugar or, or lipids that can insulate that heat that will really, uh, that can be problematic for, for me particularly just because the the permeating cold when it goes down the esophagus radius, it makes the heart shiver and that's all it takes. It's nothing that's serious and it's the weirdest thing because there are some, so many doctors, especially in hospitals, I've read accounts and records and I've been doing so much research on this too that doctors, even modern doctors nowadays will not make the connection unless they are directly aware of this cold heart AFib. I could not find any testimonials or records earlier than 2004. Wow. And even then, it's so sparse, and doctors are so quick to dismiss, like, oh, you've got this, this, or something else, but it's it literally has to do with cold passing right by the heart. I'll tell you what, man. I've learned something. I've learned something today. It's, it's, it's fascinating, but it almost adds to my frustration for you because it's it is nothing serious, it's right? Nothing it's serious, like and it's so easily handled. You're you're chugging these cold drinks or whatever there, and and uh, on site, and it literally puts you into AFib by consuming a really really ice cold beverage, whatever. It and it's not drink. just an ice yeah. cold beverage. I mean, it's it's only been triggers of sh super sugary or like dairy stuff that's okay. cold. So but you've even identified then, that, but either either way, even then, like, like man, I I love 
I've, I've never had an ice cold water set me off. I've never had, you know, ice cold other things set me off. But just knowing the fact that AFib is a potential thing, yeah, it's no brainer for me. Like, as much as I love the cold, as, as I love being cold, yeah, I will sacrifice some ice cubes in my drink for the sake of not not going into no, AFib again. It's such a weird thing, man. It's, it's, it's neat. And thank you for sharing that story. You know, it's, it's I hope that in some way, shape, or form, like you said, can help people out because, you know, at the end of the day, that's what I love to do. I love to help people out, to inspire people, to send a positive message. And, you know, there's different stuff that I've been through that I love to tell people about. And, and uh, you know, I've, other, I've had other issues like that that seem very strange and weird. And, you know, and I have shared them with people and, and we'll continue to share them in, in different ways. And this podcast is going to be a way to do that, but it's neat to do that. And hopefully that can help somebody out. But, you know, walking away through that roller coaster ride, right? Now you you know what it is. I mean, it must have made you feel so good to to learn what it was. But now that that's behind you, right? What what does the future hold for Gabe Pena? Where where are we going now? Uh, like, what's the track look like? I mean, you've done you've done some great things, man. And even even last year. Um, you know, you, uh, you pulled a thousand pound deadlift at giant slive on a, on a normal deadlift bar with calibrated plates, which was a monumental feat, you know, and congratulations on that. I mean, that was huge, man. And then, you know, from there you came to the Shaw classic on the, the Hummer tire deadlift there, you pulled 1100 pounds, 500 kilos, which again, is another monumental, uh, feat on that bar. And, and, uh, you know, there's only so many people that have done that or accomplished that type of weight on there. So again, reinforcing, we're deadlifting, we're deadlifting, and, and you've had these really, really cool moments in the past year, 2021, but you know, what, um, you know, what, what's your angle? Like, where are you trying to go? Obviously you're trying to improve, you're trying to get better. And, you know, I mean, we haven't really talked about, uh, a lot about the message that you send out to people. And it's one of the things that I love about you is that, you know, you put in hard work, you're a hard worker and you put out positive messages and you know it's just like the start of the podcast here right like we're talking about you know the mountains and and you know being grateful and thankful and you know being connected to nature in so many ways and and uh, grounded right and and you know life perspective and all these different cool things but you know where 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 are you trying to go ultimately like where what's the what's the path here the ultimate goals have always been world's strongest man I want world's strongest man. And there's no doubt in my mind that I have what it takes in my mind. I know I'm going to win it someday. Yeah. It's just a matter of time and work and making sure that I keep learning and keep evolving from all the lessons and the experiences that I have accumulated over the years. And, you know, looking back on last year, last year was the first year where I had essentially a full year of pro level contest experience. 2020 was my pro debut, but that was a weird, it was year. a very weird year, yeah. very short year for contests, but 2021, I was in it, man. I was in it. And, you know, I, even in the midst of all these pro shows, I was dealing with knee injuries that I was not at my top level of performance, but I was still giving it my all and taking as much away from it as I can because I know that everything that I went through last year yeah. is only going to push that bar further for what comes this year yeah. and all the years ahead. Yeah. I plan on doing this for a long time, as long as I can, yeah. as long as I can healthily. But the ultimate goal is world's strongest man. I want to I want to have that title. That, that is... A big goal that I set for myself, not just when I turned pro, but when I started doing strongman. That was it's a weird thing for for a newbie to the sport to say that. But there was never a doubt in my mind 
that I have what it takes from witnessing the way I was able to progress through the early stages of my own training. I knew that I have what it takes to get there and everything I've done between now and then has just greater affirmed that notion. So world's strongest man is the ultimate goal. Another ultimate goal is a deadlift world record. That is, I have no doubt in my mind. I have what it takes to do it. Yeah. I pulled a thousand pounds at the deadlift world champs yet last year. And that was right in the, peak of my knee injuries yeah so to be able to know that i can do a thousand with knee injuries yeah i know that i can get that world record it's just again a matter of time and work and making sure that i have a, a very effective prep with no injuries or anything holding me back yeah so as far as strongman goes those are the two biggest goals and i am going to give damn well everything i can yeah. to achieve them no that's that's awesome man i mean i love hearing that and you know there's a certain part of that that's mental Right. And so knowing in your head what you're capable of and where you're going and kind of being able to see that path and, and you know, where you're where you're going to end up. Right. There, there's a lot of power in that. And it's, it's neat to hear you say that. And, and uh, you know, um, it's going to be exciting to watch, you know, along the way, man, like like the journey. And, and you know, in a lot of ways, the debut of, of you competing as a pro, like you said, was kind of skewed because of 2020 and um, even 2020, 2021, a little bit, you know, so now hopefully in 2022, there's some big things coming up. I know there is, and, and, uh, we've been able to train together, uh, you know, with you coming out yesterday, which was a heck of a lot of fun. And, and, uh, just the, the approach, man, I, I like learning the approach and it's fascinating to learn for me, your history, if you will, of, of how you got into things and everybody's a little bit unique. Everybody's a little bit different in, in the way that they approach, uh, training and the, they approach competition and you know through all their experiences what they've learned and what they've taken away and what they've been able to apply from that learning and from those experiences and you know I think you're you're a guy that's done a great job with with having these experiences and you know going through the process and then coming back and getting better and, and improving right and, and improving on these weaknesses and you know you've had injuries you've had to overcome and you've had obstacles you've had to overcome and it's neat to see you work through all that, man, and, and at the heart of it, still have that that positive message and being grateful for, hey, yeah, this was tough, but I'm I'm thankful and grateful for going through it because it taught me this. And now you're able to share that. And, and uh, like I said, you're going to coach a lot of people, and I feel like that's very rewarding for you. I think it's something that you really enjoy, and it, it seems like you've kind of done the training, the personal training early on, and now you've been able to apply it. Uh, to coaching other people and i'm sure their success makes you very happy too. let me tell you brian it's one of the most profound joys in life to see one's own personal philosophies take shape in another person and watch them grow from it too like that is it's just so fulfilling to see and witness that happen firsthand and i feel very fortunate to be able to work with such skilled and driven athletes across the nation you know it's 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 been really fun to be a coach and to see those things take shape in their strengths and their skill. And, and I love it, man, but it's, uh, you know, I, it's all too fitting that we're here in the mountains now because I've learned a lot of my core life philosophies up here in the mountains. You know, we were driving out this morning looking at the continental divide and I pointed out Long's peak, the, the northernmost 14 here in Colorado, there in Rocky mountain national park. And that was back in 2018 when my wife and I got married 
you know, I told you that peak was overlooking the frozen lake we stood on top of and said our vows. That's really and cool. I, I, I saw it, we both saw it, and we're like, I want to come back and climb that thing. Like, that is the biggest mountain I see in any direction I look. I want to come back and do it. And, you know, we really invested ourselves into that process. We were listening to podcasts from Rocky Mountain National Park, like doing research on the route. Like, uh, I had told you, when we actually climbed that mountain in August, three months after we got married, we started at 1.30 in the morning, and we did not make it to the summit of Long's Peak until about 11.30 a.m., so almost at wow. noon. So, I mean, we're talking about nine nine hours of upward climb, and we didn't get back down to the cars until 5.30 p.m., so that's 15, 16-hour days of just climbing the mountains. But that really instilled a lot of the philosophies I have in terms of you know, it, the idea of the ultimate goal is beautiful on its own. You know, standing on top of that summit is amazing. You're looking out and getting that view from above is amazing. But it's every step that you take between that trailhead and there, all the obstacles, all the twists, all the turns, you know, the rocks you have to climb over, the the paths you have to take, the trees, the forest, the alpine, the it's... The beauty is in the journey itself and every obstacle along the way. And it's hard. I mean, there's there's times where I cramped up on that mountain and I was on the side of a slope looking 4,000 feet down, stretching, trying to get these cramps to go away. But being able to overcome, you know, the the cramps, the altitude sickness, all of that and get the job done, it yeah. was a hard day. And even I told you before, like the, the deadlifts that I've done, all the things that I've achieved in Strongman so far have been great and they've been epic. But that to this day, summiting Long's Peak as my first... 14er and learning the lessons I did on that long 16 hour day I've taken so much of that and applied it to my life I mean, I, I know what real hard is whenever yeah. I'm faced with something that seems difficult I think of that mountain or any of the other mountains I've done since and knowing that if I keep taking that step forward after the next step and keep moving it's only a matter of time and work like I've said over and over again and these lessons that I've learned up here in the mountains or lessons that I've learned through the hardships that I faced in owning a business. You know, it's it's things that well equip me for everything that is yet to come. And I, I don't think enough people get to say that they've earned philosophies like that, which is tragic in a way because yeah. it's one of the best tools in your arsenal, understanding that those positive steps forward just accumulate yeah. over and over, and sooner or later they're going to yield a quite magnificent view from above. Yeah, that, that perspective is, is amazing, man. And, and you know, talking to you about that climb and what you learned from that climb and where you had to go internally through moments of that climb when, I mean, you're a big guy doing this, right? It, you're not small and it's not very easy, right? So there's, you know, a part you described to me on that climb where you're doing basically a bear crawl for three quarters of a mile straight and your body's cramping up and, and I'm sure your mind is like, wow, I don't know if I can do this or, you know, I, I, am I going to work through this? Am I going to get there? And, you know, to overcome those type of challenges that, that are in front of you, obstacles that are in front of you, there is a lot of power in going to that spot mentally and, and working through those very difficult moments. And it's interesting to hear you say that's your biggest accomplishment. And when things seem hard, you compare it to that and say, I was able to do that. I was able to overcome that. And there's a certain amount of not physical strength, but mental strength that comes from going through very, very difficult things like that. And it's like you said, you earn that perspective. 
by going through that. You come out of it a different and more well-equipped person, you know, whether it's new philosophies, new strengths, new understanding, new perspective. It's it's quite an, an enlightening growth experience. It really is. And those those experiences are core core memories, you know, and you, yeah. you don't lose them through any trial that you face from here on out. And, yeah. you know, talking about it through mine, you know, this has been a, a, a interview on Gabe the whole time. I'm curious to know, are there any experiences like that for you that you can think of? You know, I would, I would want to know what has led to four times world's strongest man being here and what does he consider to be like the big mountains he's climbed over. Gosh, that's a, that's a whole nother podcast probably. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, there's been a lot, man. There's been a lot. And those, those experiences for me have uh, also taught me a lot. And, you know, there's been a lot of uh, ups and downs and, and things that I've had to go through, you know, personally and, and with competition. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's created my own path as well. Yeah. Right. And my perspective and things that I've had to overcome and some I have talked about and some I have not talked about. And, you know, I definitely will talk about more uh, on this podcast and, and in different ways, because I think it's, it's important to share that type of stuff with people. Well, and everyone um, has their own unique story too. And that's, what's so yeah. great is all the different perspectives and flavors of this. So I would definitely oh, be keen to yeah. listen to that podcast. When yeah, it comes out. no, for sure, man. I mean, I, I just, I think there's, so much power in ending with that story, you know, of, of, of doing that climb, getting that, that, you know, perspective and, and, and learning so much about yourself and that self growth, right? Yeah. Like, and you're continuing that. And, and, uh, you know, I know that we touched on earlier, you're going to be a dad soon, yeah. literally within the next month, you're going to be a dad and, and that's going to give you a whole new perspective on life as well. And it's probably something we'll have to talk about, uh, you know, after, after it happens, I, I'm very curious uh, to see what your thoughts are about it and what you can share with people. And, and uh, you know, going into that, I, you know, I, I even said to you, you know, I, I don't really want to tell you too much about what, what I thought or how it goes, but it just gives you such a different um, way to look at life. And it's beautiful, man. And I'm, I'm just so excited for your wife and you to experience that and go through it. And, and, uh, and it's going to be amazing, man. And, and the, on the, on the upside as well, now you are going to get dad strength. Oh yeah. I mean, which I'm, is, which is a level. I mean, it's a level up, man. It's coming. Man, you're going to see that 1000 pound jump straight up to 1105 real quick. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I can't wait, man. Well, tell everybody where they can follow you, where they can find you. Um, you know, if they want to check out Gabe Pena and learn more, man, uh, where can they go? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm most active on Instagram. You can find me at Texas Titan Gabe on there. You know, I would like to get a, a YouTube channel up and I have a YouTube channel. I just haven't put much up on there yet, but I definitely love connecting with my fans and even some of the things we've talked about here, getting to hear the outreach of people reach out to me and, and learn from my experience and relate to them. Yeah. Even just being a, uh, the, I, I, 2020 world's strongest man that made me the first hispanic latino in history to compete at that platform and the amount of of outpour from latinos worldwide just to see a, a latin american or a latin country you know represent at that stage that has been so incredible you know it for me it was as simple of a decision as representing my heritage and you know a lot of the culture from the area of south texas where i grew up from yeah but then to hear the that level of connection and pride from people that I've never met that I might never meet see it's just to see that that is it's amazing man and that's that's like a, a whole other thing we talked about that we were going to talk about here I feel like we've had such a cool conversation but 
that inspiration to those people. And, um, you know, it's just, it's amazing, man, the reach. And I, I see where you're going and, and the message that you're putting out. And I am excited to see where you're going to go, you know, with this. And, and you're going to continue to inspire those people and to pave that path uh, for them. And, and who knows, well, maybe we'll see more of them, you know, follow in your footsteps and, 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 you know, go into strength and, and, uh, show off their strength, right? Well, that's one of the things that's excited me most about, you know, when they told me that I was the first Latino in his or the first Hispanic Latino in history yeah. to be at that stage, that was cool. But what sounds even cooler in my opinion is the first of many, you know, that, yes. that sounds way cooler. And so I hope that, you know, that, and, and it, I've come to learn that I have inspired people and that I will take that with me all throughout the rest of my life as being an immense source of pride. I love it, man. I love it. Well, keep inspiring people. I really appreciate you coming on, man, and sharing your story. And I feel like you're a guy that I could literally talk to all day about this stuff and we could dive into this and dive into that. And well, you know, that just means we got to do more in the future. I think, I think we do, man. I think we do, but, uh, definitely appreciate your time, man. I wish you all of the best, uh, for the future, uh, with the baby, with your family, with the competition and, uh, just want to see you succeed, man. So, it's, uh, it's going to be really awesome. If you guys enjoyed this podcast, if you got something out of it, if it made you think um, in a different way, please share it. You know, we're trying to get this thing going. And, uh, you know, Gabe is just one of, of many awesome guests that I hope to have on here and, and uh, to dive into, right? Like have, have a good conversation like we just did. So, you know, please share it and, and help us grow this thing and, and, uh, and make it awesome. But uh, really appreciate your time, brother. And I think we are going to sign off right there. Thanks for having me, Brian. Lots of love to you all. Thank you.